Hi, my name is Nicholas Tretian. I'm the writer, director, and editor of the supernatural crime drama Thunderbird, and you are listening to Neil Before Pod. Neil Before Blog presents Neil Before Pod. Hello and welcome to Neil Before Pod, the podcast that will see you in court. I'm your host Craig and we are here to discuss the first, possibly only, we don't know, season of the Marvel Disney Plus TV show She-Hulk, or She-Hulk Attorney at Law, or She-Hulk whatever they decided to tack on at the end on every single episode, depending what title card they wanted to make that week. But that's very long to say, so we'll just call it She-Hulk for the purposes of this. Joining me for this conversation, we have... A man who managed to drag himself away from his seven soulmates. It's Andrew. Hello. Hello there. Nothing about those seven soulmates. No, just sick of them. He won't deny this. <laughs> I just needed a break because it's so exhausting, constantly servicing multiple beautiful women at the same time. I just had to have a break. And one man as well. <laughs> and also joining, it's the best I could find on the legally distinct Tinder app, Cat. Hello. Hello. I am here to extol the virtues of illegal drama on television because it's probably my favorite subgenre of drama or dramedies even. I watch way too many of them. Hi. Boston Legal, Ally McBeal, those kinds of things. Franklin and Bush. The Good Wife, Suits. The only one I watched was Boston Legal and some of Ally McBeal. I think the last season of Ally McBeal because it was on late at night when I was young and I just watched it. Yeah, I was going to say that dates you a little bit. (laughs) I'm as old as I am. That hasn't been on television in quite some time, so yes. (laughs) It was probably delayed because UK. But yeah, anyway, we digress. So She-Hulk, let us start with some non-spoiler thoughts. So Andrew, what did you think of the show overall, without spoiling for anybody? That's one thing. For the most part, I really, really enjoyed it. It certainly seemed that a lot of the reasons that some people had for hating it were the same as reasons that others had for absolutely loving it. And I am very, very firmly in the second category. It was a lot of fun, didn't take itself too seriously, and had a lot of good ideas, I felt. Okay. Kat, what were your thoughts? I mostly enjoyed it. I kind of wanted a little more from it. I think it succeeds in a lot of things it wanted to do, but also it doesn't, in my opinion, take any of those elements far enough. And I think we'll get to that later. It's okay. It's funny. It's not hilarious. The legal stuff is interesting, but they don't do very much with it. The superhero stuff is cool, but mostly subversive, which I'm kind of here for, to be honest. I thought a lot of the stuff that they purposefully go against the grind of, because that's the MCU, I thought that was quite clever. And Tatiana Maslany is amazing. I think she's the best thing about this. And she carries pretty much all of it, because the supporting cast is... eh. (laughs) shrug (laughs) the supporting cast is a shrug but she's great and i would certainly love more of this especially if they can run with the stuff that makes the show good and ditch the stuff that make it more mediocre cool i had a difficult relationship with this show i would say throughout i completely agree with you that it has some interesting stuff but it doesn't take it far enough or in one case i think it takes it too far Mm -hmm. which we'll definitely get to 
It's an interesting contrast there. I never hated it. I was never sitting there thinking, I'm not going to watch this show anymore, or I don't want to watch this show. I kept tuning in because I wanted to tune it. I'm not much of a hate watcher, the Flash notwithstanding. That is an exception. (laughs) I was going to say. A complicated exception that will soon be over. Loved the Jennifer character. Tatiana Maslany was excellent in the role. Supporting cast, completely agree with you. Forgettable in a lot of ways. I think it's a very confused show. And we'll definitely talk in greater detail about where it's confused and how it wants to be one thing but trying to be another thing and gets mixed up in itself. Mm-hmm. So without further ado, should we just smash into the spoilers? G-Hulk smash. Erg. <laughs> smash! Hey, we're in spoilers. Let's just start with Jennifer because the show is apparently hers. We could argue that it's not really hers. It perhaps belongs to someone else, but we'll get to that. So let's talk about, at first, her identity struggles and just adapting to now being a superhero, being a celebrity, being She-Hulk. Kat, what did you think of when she got her powers and how that changed her life and how she adjusted to that changing her life? I thought it was quite a reasonable transition. There's a lot of the reluctant superhero, reluctant hero structure, which the show, in fact, actively tries to fight against. It's like, oh no, we're not doing that. She does want to be this, I swear. It does a decent job of exploring the change of her feelings around this change in her life. At the beginning, she really doesn't like it. She really doesn't want anything to do with this. She just wants to be a lawyer, wants to be herself. And then, of course, it stops being a hindrance and she starts seeing the benefits of being She-Hulk. It's great that she can control it even from the beginning. It's certainly a difference with Bruce. I would even say we spend a little bit too much time with Bruce at the beginning. Cameo heavy, I think, the beginning. But overall, I do like where she goes with her feelings about all of this, even if she starts off really not wanting anything to do with her powers or indeed the moniker or anything like that. By the end, she is She-Hulk and she's very attached to that. And I like that. I like that a lot. I'm looking forward to where that will go, because I think a lot of what holds the show back is that to and fro situation around how she feels. Do you even want this? And what do those powers mean in your everyday life and all of that? There's just a lot of that going on in this season. I was just looking forward to the legal drama of it all, and we didn't get enough of it, in my opinion. So it'll be great to see more of that. I think. That first episode you were talking about, apparently that was originally supposed to be the penultimate episode, as in they were going to give you almost the whole season and then tell you what her origin was. Oh, and then get a flashback. Oh, Yeah, or deliver it in some other way. It's kind of weird how it rubs up against itself in the opening minutes where it says, oh, you want to see this fun lawyer show? Well, here's a pretty generic origin story episode Mm -hmm. instead. It actually takes two episodes out of nine to really get into the show that you're there for it's going to make you watch the legal drama stuff doesn't kick in until episode three which yeah is leaving that bit long and i think it should have trusted its audience to just accept the fact that something happened she's bruce banner's cousin and now she's a hulk let's move on and deal with whatever that means but in terms of her own acclimating to it as in she doesn't have a personality shift in the same way that bruce does we still have questions about that because we still don't know if he's killed the Hulk or not. Hmm. Although it kind of still seems like he has. Because he still refers to the other guy. Where's the other guy? 
What happened to him? I think it's just one of those things that we're expected to just quietly accept because they aren't really going to explore it in any kind of detail. Or maybe they will once the rights lapse and they can make a Hulk movie, which it seems like they're going to. But anyway, that's not a Hulk show, or it's not a Bruce Banner Hulk show. Yeah, the adjustment to having powers, having presence that she never had before, as in being the complete centre of attention that she wasn't used to. I like how she changed her perspective on that as well, as in started off being a bit resistant to it and then started realising actually it can be really fun to be the centre of attention and go out and be confident and whatever. I thought that was really well explored and I would have probably have liked to see more of it rather than it just diverting and doing other things that probably didn't need to be there in the first place. Andrew, what are your thoughts? I liked how gradual it was that her development towards accepting the She-Hulk identity wasn't this instantaneous thing. It wasn't just, this, okay, I have powers now. I am now Hulk. I am She-Hulk. Hear me roar. It's only through her experiences as Jennifer and as She-Hulk that she's ultimately able to reconcile the two identities. And I think the forcing that just so she can be She-Hulk in the She-Hulk show, it certainly would have got the story going faster, but at the same time, it wouldn't feel quite as complete a story. And I like that it was a mixture of both her own introspection and her experiences that ultimately led to her coming around on it. That made the change in, in how she felt about the identity feel more natural. Definitely. And there is an adjustment, because there would naturally be an adjustment to any kind of physical change, and this is one of the bigger physical physical changes there is. I really liked how the conflict started in her job because she was really proud of her achievements as a lawyer and the skills that she'd gained and her experience and so forth. And then suddenly, I only have this job because I'm She-Hulk. So she hasn't necessarily been hired on the merits of her ability to do that job. It's just, we want a superhuman face of this superhuman law division that we're setting up. And that's the end of it. Well, you don't really get any sense of how she's regarded by her boss she gets put on cases and stuff, which I suppose suggests some level of confidence, but it's not something that's ever actually addressed. I think it was more of a contrast of her being offered this job because she's She-Hulk. You know, she was also rejected for literally every other job because she's She-Hulk. And I think out of just desperation, if nothing else, then she just didn't question it too closely. Yeah, there was a little bit of doubt creeping in early on where he was thinking about the fact that I'm only really here because I'm She-Hulk and I don't want to be She-Hulk, I want to be getting by on my own merits, which of course is a metaphor for the women in the workplace thing. It's the working twice as hard to achieve half as much sort of idea, which I'm not going to mansplain to anybody. Oh, but what is it like to be a female lawyer? (laughs) (laughs) No explanation needed. It was very, very on the page. This is something that I both appreciated and also didn't was how on the nose some of its stuff was. You could really do without the very, oh, but kids, right now we're talking about the gender inequality in the workplace. (laughs) And now we're talking about how difficult it is for women to feel safe when they're going home at night and there's a bunch of creepsters. There's just a lot of no subtext needed because everything is text. (laughs) On the one hand, it's necessary for some people because they don't get the subtext. And so in kind of a classic, almost Marvel way where they cater to the lowest common denominator, how do we make something as understandable and clear to absolutely everybody? It kind of loses some of the nuance that the issue has because you kind of have to go the 101 route. You have to just kind of start from nothing. Assume that they don't understand anything. 
Like I said, I both appreciated and it was also a little bit, okay, so this is very basic stuff, but all right. But at least it did so with humour. So I'll give it that. And of course, it broke the fourth wall to say, we are giving you this lesson. So mm-hmm. it's patting itself on the back for being obvious, I suppose, which I have some issues with. We'll definitely talk about fourth wall breaks and my reaction to them and our general reaction to them. Mm-hmm. But the thing you're talking about, the very on-the-nose explaining and lessons and so on, there's a great example of it in the first episode of the show, the whole always angry thing or her spin on the always angry thing as in women always have to keep their rage in check because it's not accepted in the same way and she just tells Bruce that having already learned that lesson and understanding that lesson because he's saying as a Hulk you have to be careful remain calm all the time otherwise bad things will happen etc and we discussed this before offline cat I think fairly recently I think this lesson was better delivered in Supergirl and Andrew you'd be able to either back me up or tell me that I'm completely off base on this one I looked it up because I was curious as to when it happened. It's the sixth episode of the first season, so very early in its run, and Kara basically explodes at her boss, played by Callista Flockhart, funnily enough. So Ali McBeal, there's a reference, a connection there. But she explodes and she says, why are you so mean? Stop it. And then Cat Grant, it's another cat, there we go, takes her out for a drink and says, you can't do that. You cannot let yourself do that in the workplace. It will do more harm than good. It's treated as a teachable moment, And I think it feels more organic that way. It was interesting to see that so many people were talking about it. It's like, yeah, this is exactly how I feel. This is great. It's great that it's being addressed. I was was thinking, this was addressed on Supergirl like eight years ago, or however long ago it was. Supergirl, less of an audience base, I suppose. There's also the factor that that the way that the issue is brought up is different in these shows. In Supergirl, it was Kat making the point to Kara because this was something that she needed to understand. Yeah. Whereas in, in She-Hulk, it was ostensibly Jennifer making the point to Bruce, but she's also making the point to the audience, even though at that point she wasn't speaking directly to them. It was put in for the audience's benefit rather than the characters. Yeah, and I think it makes sense in the context of Jennifer because she's had a career by this point, so she's navigated those waters, whereas in Supergirl, the naivety of Kara in the workplace was one of the big themes in certainly the early seasons. So it's different things, but I think I found the Supergirl example of the lesson better. And I found the show was doing that throughout as well. As you said, Kat, every single time that they wanted to make a point, they would make that point and there would be no ambiguity about the fact they're making that point. It felt inorganic to me a lot of the time. How does it feel like being a female lawyer? People are always asking you what it feels like to be a female lawyer. Okay, she's saying it in front of a crowd with a microphone in her hand. It couldn't be any more overt than that. In terms of the celebrity status, the fact that she is hired as a celebrity is interesting. Although the trademark thing annoyed me because surely the law firm would think, make sure we own that before we run a marketing campaign on it. Then you wouldn't have the court case. But the celebrity thing, I don't think they played it up as much. I think we'll be doing more of celebrity culture when Wonder Man comes out because that's going to be more Hollywood actor and now a superhero type thing. But she certainly enjoyed a bit of local celebrity and I actually found it weird when she was out of She-Hulk and nobody was really even looking at her. No extras in the background going, oh my God, what's going on here? Well, people were staring at her everywhere she was. I think that's enough. I think it would have gotten old pretty quick if everything was like, oh my God. Okay, gosh, we get it. Can we have the story now? So I didn't mind that per se. So she had a couple of celebrity engagements. There was the gala she went to. Even going to the wedding, she tried to flaunt her celebrity status, at least to start with. Well, that was more of a let's show up my friends type thing, which I can sort of understand at weddings. Weddings could be a chore to go to. In that case, it was more of a, I'm going to show up my friends because they're treating me like a servant. Yes. 
but more under the public scrutiny thing. There was a, is she going to be an Avenger? Is it true you're carrying the Abomination's baby, Hulk's cousin, etc.? The way she was labelled by the media as She-Hulk and compared to the Hulk and struggling to get her own identity that way. What did you think of that sort of background of the, here's the public reaction, here's why she appears in the news, and here's all the rumours that are starting around her and all that? I don't think it needed to be quite as histrionic as it was presented without still being able to make the same point, which is that a lot of news outlets just completely make things up or class them as rumours for the sake of viewing figures. It's essentially like the whole clickbait journalism thing, which is annoyingly prevalent still. I did enjoy them as the jokes that they were in the moment, but as an aspect of the overall world-building and storytelling, they were a little bit superfluous. The news bumpers, I suppose, if it wasn't for them, we wouldn't have understood what Titania was up to episode to episode. Because she just vanishes and then reappears at different points. There's a lot of funny stuff in the marketing of this show, as in framing Titania as if she was going to be a big part of the show and then she isn't. And let's keep an eye on when Daredevil's going to show up, because that's the only reason some people are watching. (laughs) When's he going to show up? Not until the end. You have to sit through this until the end, until he shows up. And then when he did, a lot of people were not pleased. The kind of people that are looking for that are never going to be happy, are they? But yeah, Kat, what did you think of the celebrity side of it? The news reporting and... Just her adjusting to being a public figure. I didn't mind the angle. It's not really something we've explored in the MCU before. Even if we've had some celebrity characters like Tony Stark and stuff, because he was already a celebrity before he was Iron Man, that aspect never really entered into the conversation, as it were. Whereas she is launched from obscurity to at least local celebrity status literally overnight and not through choice either. So a very different situation. And maybe because I watch my fair share of trash TV and trash YouTube and things like that. So the idea of the rumors and the paparazzis and the various nefarious people who just want to use you because you're famous or because you're super powered or anything like that, I think it made sense for this story. So that in itself, I didn't mind. I did mind the Titania. I'm not even sure what the word is. Antagonism? No, I didn't like that they introduce her. She's actually quite interesting and they don't do very much with her at all. Jamila Jamil is really cool by her own right and from the good place and all of that. People love her. So like it would have been cool to see some character development perhaps in her, perhaps some development in the relationship between these two from adversaries to perhaps reluctant friends or something. It would have been great. First of all, for more screen time, and second of all, for that to have meant something. Because even though she shows up at the wedding and there's a little bit more of her than just the trademark stuff and the whatever, it just wasn't enough for me. I just don't think that they justified having Jamila Jamil in this show at all. So it was just like, oh, okay. I mean, I suppose. Her American accent was really good, surprisingly. Could have fooled me if I didn't know she was British. Generally speaking, they kind of just scratch the surface with the celebrity stuff. Maybe there's an intent to do more with this. Like I said, I think we spent a really long time just on the oscillation of, do I even want to be famous? Do I want to be a superhero? And then by the end of the show, it's like, yes, okay, this is who I am. Let's go. But the show's over now. (laughs) Whether or not we get a second season remains to be seen. Obviously, tell the story you want to tell in the rhythms you want to tell it in. I don't want to be like, oh, well, they could have cut this and this. I see the value of a lot of this stuff. The trademark stuff, for example, felt like a slog. It was a slog of an episode. 
And I just think that they could have done a better job with it. The retreat episode at Emil's ranch or whatever, that also kind of felt like a slog. So that's what I'm talking about when I say that there's some interesting elements in the show that they don't quite take far enough to make anything substantial of it. It's just playing with interesting ideas, maybe to see what sticks. But the show is so short that we don't really get a chance to see what happens when those elements stick. Does that make sense? Makes complete sense, yeah. And Aaron and I had a similar conversation when we talked about Moon Knight. The Moon Knight season was almost a flavour of everything you can get from Moon Knight in eight episodes or however many it was, six episodes, whatever it was. It seems like you've done everything that's Moon Knight, but you've done it in quite a shallow way. So how can you do anything else? And you can't really go into depth in those things because you've locked them off. I don't think this show quite locks everything out that it could do later on, but there's a similar idea of here's all the flavours of She-Hulk that you can get in nine episodes and that's it. That's the concept. Now, what do we do? I totally agree with you on the Titania thing. I was really disappointed in the way Jamila Jamil was used and the character as well. I wouldn't even call her a character. She's just more of an obstacle, even yeah. if you could call her that. Sure. Yeah. yeah, quite. And you talked about how great her American accent is. It's bound to be because she had about 10 lines in the whole show. So she probably <laughs> got to practice them over and over again just to get those lines down. The thing about influencer characters, and I don't watch a lot of shows that have influencer characters. So when they show up, they tend to be treated in really unsympathetic ways. And they tend to be treated the same way in all the things that I would watch they might show up in. So it's things like using hater unironically in conversation, stuff like that. I just don't believe that people really talk like that. It just seems like it's internet speak put in a script because it sounds young and cool. I don't know. Maybe I'm just showing my age again. Eh, I think you are a little bit. I watch enough YouTube. Okay. Huh. And enough YouTube drama channels. My vice in life is this, <laughs> is gossip about YouTubers and things like that. What have they done? What's going on? People do use the word hater unironically in conversation. It's a thing. Do I love it? Not really, but it just is a thing. So yeah, that in itself is fine. It is a caricature, like Andrew said. I don't think that it's entirely fair, perhaps, on these influencer kind of people, but I think there's more to it than that. I just didn't understand, for example, how does she influence? Is she just an Instagram person? Is she a YouTube person? Is she a mainstream celebrity? What's going on with her? What's her deal? You can say, oh, she's an influencer, but there's categories. There's different kinds of people. What kind of content does she make? Does she make content? Because it didn't feel like she was the kind of person who makes stuff for a living. Yeah, she was the face of the She-Hulk products that she then trademarked, but who made them, not our. Yeah, even before that, when it's, oh, here's this influencer, Titania, she's already famous, people already know her. So being well-versed in influencer culture, <laughs> I was just like, so what kind? What flavor of influencer is she? I don't think that that was made clear at all. And it's a cop-out a little bit. And maybe it's the writers not really understanding what that means, which, fair enough, a lot of influencers don't understand what that means. It's a stupid term and it encompasses way too many things. So what is she? So who is she? And if you're going to make her important, give me something. And then they try to make her important, but they didn't give me anything. So it was just very confusing. And I didn't understand what her beef with Jen was initially either, other than she beat her up, I suppose. I think that was it. I don't understand why she attacked the courtroom as well. I think it's mentioned. I think it's that she took something and it didn't agree with her. Or I don't know. It's not a major part of the story. The origin of that beef should be if she's going to try and take her down. 
I think the show was using the term influencer in a very generic sense, because it seems that uh, a lot of people's basic understanding of the term is that it refers to a vacuous online celebrity who doesn't actually do anything worthwhile, but people pay them money to promote things. And I think because the writers saw the character of Titania as being incredibly superficial, they didn't bother giving her any more depth because they had decided that she either didn't have any or she didn't deserve any. Yeah, but she needed more depth if they were going to make an episode about that antagonistic relationship, which doesn't exist because they didn't bother to create one, really. I think we're going to keep coming back to that, as in, this was a reasonable idea, but very poorly executed. Yeah. You talked about the retreat as well, Kat, and yeah, I found that episode a bit of a slog as well, although I found what it was saying quite interesting. 100%. Yeah. Again, it's something that's interesting and halfway to something actually kind of profound. Having a bunch of these male characters with ostensibly traditionally male superpowers, they have super strength, they have all these things, they're like, but they're just sitting there being soft, talking about feelings and their traumas and things like that. And that's worthwhile to make mainstream, the idea that feelings are valid and what you go through makes you who you are and sometimes it damages you and how can you get language to talk about those things. And yes, it is played for laughs, but the underlying message is actually quite interesting. It just kind of doesn't go anywhere other than a very tangential connection. Let's bring another location so that we have somewhere to film for the last episode. It's just, uh. Yeah, and that episode does represent a major step forward in reconciling the two sides of herself as well, as in, am I Jen or am I She-Hulk? Well, it's both, but also neither. And yeah, you can figure it out from there. But I also thought that it's a weird thing for her to be discussing in this group therapy session with a bunch of people she's never met when you're supposedly have this best friend character where they only ever seem to interact to quip against each other. Mm. Isn't this a conversation she could have with Nikki at some point? Uh, I don't know about that because Nikki doesn't get it. She's not a superpowered person. She can be a friend and she can be an ear for all of this, sure, but... I think the idea of Jen talking about this with other people with powers is that they also understand that aspect. They have another identity that they have to reconcile with. And each person has a different relationship to their secret identity. So that conversation then becomes more valuable, I think, than it could have been with Nikki. Nikki is super supportive the entire time. She's just like, you go, girl. And that's great. But what does that mean for Jen's kind of ambivalence. I don't know that Nikki would understand that. And I suppose they could have at least covered that as in they have that conversation and Nikki just doesn't have any input because she can't connect with her on that level. I think that's what you were getting at when you said the support characters were a bit, yeah. I think they could have done a lot more with that friendship. Yeah, sure. The problem with having that kind of conversation though is because the show is for the most part very lighthearted. I think them actually having that conversation would end up feeling a bit of a downer and would end up affecting the vibrant dynamic that they have, which is why they chose not to address it. Yeah, I think that was a deliberate choice. And obviously we've got Tim Roth, so let's use him. And we'll have him as the chairperson of the self-help group that he's running. And yeah, if you've got Tim Roth, use Tim Roth because he's great and he's very good in this. As someone who enjoys The Incredible Hulk, I'm one of the few. 
There aren't many of us. Yeah, you are rare, Indeed. so... You, you are very few. <laughs> I'm going to set up a support group for Incredible Hulk fans. We'll just sit around and talk about who's not that bad. It's not bad. Why do people not like this? I felt like they completely changed him from the Blonsky that was in that film, which is sort of the point because he's in prison and he's reformed. And and it's been a while. Yeah. Somehow he managed to get seven people to fall in love with him by post. <laughs> which happens with serial killers, by the way. Yeah, it's terrifying. <laughs> Did people ever wonder why you're single when serial killers can find love? <laughs> <laughs> There's a question the show doesn't ask, but I also like that Blonsky felt that he was the hero in a way because he was just doing his job. He was a military guy that was ordered to bring down the Hulk and then he got addicted to this serum. It was a poor copy of the super soldier serum. So that was blamed for a lot of his actions, which robs him of a bit of agency. But I quite like the idea of, oh, no, I'm still a military guy that was only doing what I was supposed to do, really. So that was interesting. But again, I don't think the Blonsky case was all that well done. It was just too chaotic. I disagree that it robs him of agency. If anything, it explores an aspect of legality and things that I don't think we've ever contemplated within the MCU, which is if you are affected by another substance or a machine, or if you're under somebody's mental influence, magic, whatever, what does that mean legally, especially within the framework that already exists? Is there something that somebody can do in that case? And does it necessarily absolve them of responsibility because I don't think it does. Even if he is under house arrest, he's still technically incarcerated in that regard because he did kill people and ruin Harlem and all of that. So it's just a very interesting way of looking at the legality of certain things that in the MCU is just kind of like, oh, yeah, of course we'll blow up a building and damage things. And, oh, if there's collateral, it's kind of the next step of, oh, and I forget what it's called now, but the relief efforts that Tony Stark puts in place. Damage control? Yeah, thank you. So after a certain point, yeah, you keep blowing things up, my guy. That's property that somebody paid for, and somebody's got to do something about that. If you can just come in here with impunity and just wreck things, what's the line? What's the limit? Why are you allowed and why are other people not? So that's kind of the next step. Okay, so if you're affected by magic or whatever... What does that mean? What does that even mean? So, okay, in that regard, I didn't mind that we went there. If anything, I thought it was really funny. But again, I don't know that it means anything if Wong can just come in and just take you, or if Blonsky can just take off his ankle thingy and turn into the abomination whenever the heck he wants, and then that's it. We're not going to talk about that? Okay. <laughs> Where's the responsibility in that if they're just kind of doing whatever they want? Although Bruce also killed people and wrecked Harlem, and he's not in a prison cell he's an avenger he gets to go off and do whatever he wants he gets to yeah. chill on his is it hawaiian beach mexico i think mexico he doesn't seem to suffer the same kind of consequences and we do get the mention of the sokovia cards they've been repealed off screen so that was pointless so there you go yep <laughs> glad we introduced those a few films ago <laughs> that was a lot of material that we did nothing with excellent so everything that happened in civil war is now irrelevant yep yeah i mean it only existed to get cap and start fighting. Clearly, that's all it existed to do because of how much impact it's actually had on the universe since then, but at least they've mentioned that. But yeah, Blonsky's case, Wong showing up, that brings me on to some of the other problems with the depth of the cases themselves. You have this bit where Wong shows up, he says, I took Blonsky for my own needs because apparently I need to prove myself to be Sorcerer Supreme. First question, prove yourself to who? And two, you know the Hulk. So why are you getting this potentially unstable guy out of prison? 
to fight you in a cage match somewhere. It's those kinds of things. I suppose that's a slight on the universe world building as such, because they just do these things and they don't ever feel the need to explain them. But this is a show that can interrogate those things, and it just never did. No one's standing up in front of Wong and saying, well, why him? Why not someone else? Why this? Why that? And they could do that through addressing the audience directly, or they could do it through the arguments in the courtroom itself. It just seems to be opportunities there that they just never take advantage of. There certainly were some interesting questions that a lot of the episodes were asking, but I think they felt that, again, because the show is primarily a comedy, then it wasn't necessary to fully explore them. Because within the context of this show that they've been introduced, having discussions that deep or themes with far-reaching ramifications would feel a bit out of place because the show's primary objective is to be a bit of light-hearted fun. Which suggests that maybe the cases should be a bit simpler with less to dig into. I don't think that you can do that. I don't think that any case is simple. The whole idea is that superpower things complicate matters of the law. This is kind of the simplest thing that they could come up with. There's some stuff in the uh, end credits, for example, like the Avongers thing, copyright and things like that, knockoffs and (laughs) selling merch and things like that. The responsibility of the costume maker when it comes to super suits and things like that. Those are kind of simple matters that you can, without too much analysis, resolve eventually. It's not that the cases weren't simple enough, or anything like that. It's just that the choice to focus on certain aspects of the story or the action elements as opposed to the legal stuff, I think show. In my opinion, that's where a lot of the weakness comes in. I just think it would have been much better to dig into more of the legal comedy of it all, but instead we did get kind of a more traditional MCU thing as well because there was enough action and baddies to fight and explosions and other such like yeah i say yeah because it is possible for these legal comedies to be sharp and witty and have something to say as well boston legal is the one that i've had the most experience in yes i only watched it because william shatner was in it and he was great in it he deserves every award he got for that show because he was excellent in it as was james spader there's an mcu connection there because he was ultron certainly in that show they would do a lot of talking about the issues whenever they did the courtroom stuff. But that show was written by David E. Kelly, who was a lawyer before he became a TV writer. Mm -hmm. So he understands that world and he understands how to make it meaningful and make it funny because he's, I guess, a naturally funny guy. And it doesn't seem like they had any lawyers in the writing team on this show because a lot of the, as we've said, the legal stuff was a little bit basic. That one you talked about with the costume maker and the accountability of the costume maker. Matt Murdock wins that case because Jennifer doesn't do her job properly. It ends with what kind of fuel did you put in your jet boots? And it was jet fuel. Well, that's not what I told you to do. You'd think that would be one of the first questions Jennifer would ask. What were the instructions you were given when giving this suit? And instead of getting into court and being blindsided by it, it seems like she should be cleverer than that. She should have been in theory, yes, but from a narrative perspective, the purpose of that was for the necessity of her losing to Matt, but for a reason that actually wasn't her fault. She didn't lose the case because he's a better lawyer than her. She lost the case because her client is a moron. And because she didn't do her research as well. Yes, but we're supposed to quietly ignore that. (laughs) Yeah, and the purpose of that case was to set up her lesson for the episode of how to juggle being a superhero and being a lawyer, just like Matt Murdock does. Although it's not quite a one-to-one comparison because he has a secret identity, which means he's not held accountable when he beats people up. 
since everyone knows that Jennifer Walters and She-Hulk are one and the same, if she beats someone up as She-Hulk, she will be held accountable for it. Whereas Daredevil can slip away and not be noticed. It's, oh, it's just a coincidence that Daredevil went after the guy that went after my client. So there we go. Nothing to do with me. And then it's also introducing him so Jen could have the opportunity to get some from a guy who <laughs> didn't, didn't turn out to be complete trash. <laughs> Important. There is also that. Yeah, and I thought the lesson didn't quite work as well as it could have because the point of what Matt was imparting to her was sometimes the law will fail and we have to do something else to get justice. But then it's her client that goes after the costume maker guy. I forget his name. It's her client that goes after him for the damages that he caused himself. It would have been much more connected to the point of the episode if the client had been failed in some way. And they had to step in and, and fix it. Yes, but then that would have complicated the morality of the issue. Well, in that scenario, you wouldn't necessarily have Matt Murdock being her opponent. True. We keep coming back to that. The idea was there, but they didn't execute it properly. It was an ongoing problem. The other cases then, well, since we've touched on that, the Donnie Blaze one, where it seems to be about who has the right to use and police magic. Just because Wong says he's the Sorcerer Supreme, does that mean he has the monopoly on who gets to use magic? And why didn't he just solve the problem by taking the sling ring off Donnie Blaze, as he could apparently easily do at any point. And also, I find it very difficult to believe that in the entire multiple thousand-year history of Camartage, this is the first instance of a sorcerer leaving the Order and attempting to use their magical power for their own gain. No, no, first time. Case in point, oh gosh, I forget his name now, but in... I think maybe the Doctor Strange movie, the guy who could have been... Mojo? No, no, no. Oh, the guy playing basketball? Yeah, Benjamin Pratt's character. Oh, right, yeah. I forget his name now, but he was using magic for personal gain, albeit nothing extravagant or nefarious. He was just using magic to keep walking. But yeah, it's an entirely valid point. I'm sure there's a long and varied history of people doing that sort of thing with magic. Yeah, you would imagine. So, because the ancient one didn't seem bothered about the fact that this guy was out there using magic to walk, because I suppose the ancient one would be monitoring all that because she's smart, but Wong doesn't seem to be doing that. He just seems to assume there's some kind of honour system when they kick them out. You're gone, and we hope you won't use any of the stuff you learned in the real world. Certainly not to do a third-rate magic show. And Wong knows about it as well, because when Madison shows up in his living room, he says, is that a magic act? And he's like, Donnie Blaze, I'll get you, and so on. So I guess it's a manufactured scenario that didn't need to exist. But I do like the idea that magic is real, and we have to figure out who governs it. And it's Wong because he says he's the Sorcerer Supreme and he is previous on this as this mystical order of whatever. And it makes sense this is coming up as an issue right now because of Endgame will have made sorcerers known as a public thing. So people are aware that magic really exists and Doctor Strange is himself a celebrity figure and, and whatever else. So yeah, that makes a kind of sense. But they stuck to the idea of should Donnie Blaze get to use magic? And then the judge says, well, yes, because... Otherwise, he has no livelihood, but... There's other jobs. <laughs> of course, yeah. And it's not up to the judge to care about whether this person continues to work or not on the thing that they're doing that's endangering people's lives. It shouldn't really be a consideration. And if you remove the magic from the equation entirely, the fact that he's sending people to demon dimensions, that's just reckless endangerment. Yeah. So you can throw him in prison on that all by itself. This guy tried to kill me by feeding me to a demon or something. So get rid of him instead of let's debate this. Yeah. Again, 
lack of depth in the court case. It was just played for laughs so we could see Madison cutting about drunk. She was pretty funny, though. I really liked her. I absolutely (laughs) loved her. Yeah. I thought thought she was great fun. There's me in a minority again. I couldn't stand her. I thought she was tedious. But yeah, they're just summoning this drunk person as an expert witness in a court case and no one bats an eye. Nonsense. I'm pretty sure if you turned up that drunk to court, they would not accept your testimony. Yeah, there's probably some kind of rule about that, I would imagine. My only experience of the legal system is largely limited to working in a firm of Edinburgh property lawyers, but I would imagine that if any of them turned up in court absolutely steaming, then they would summarily get kicked out. Yeah. They would at least call a recess until someone dried out, if not dismiss it entirely. I did enjoy seeing Wong, although I think they're slowly assassinating him as a character. Perhaps a little bit. And there's a few things that bothered me in the show itself. You've got the bit where he's trying to get Jennifer to agree to take on the case. And she says something about doing it by the book. And he's like, yeah, the book of Fashanti. And she says, no, the book of American law. Wong isn't an alien. Yeah. He knows that the human world has laws. In fact, he makes that point in Doctor Strange. He says, the Avengers protect people in the physical world. We protect people in the midst. So he understands there's that distinction. So it's done as a joke, but when you, as I do, I overthink these things, I looked at the joke and thought, well, that's not funny because Wong wouldn't be that stupid. Or he shouldn't be. Maybe he is now. Eh, I don't disagree with you. I do think that it's an oversight for sure. Benedict Wong, he does the best he can with the material, but every time he shows up, he just seems to do increasingly dumb stuff. He's likable, though. That's the reason they keep bringing him back. I would argue it's a similar thing to what happened to Thor. As a character, the actor has great comedic timing. And so the filmmakers are like, oh, we should make use of the comedy that this person is naturally good at. How can we put this character in a more comedic situation and have them react in a way that's just funny and not dramatic? That's what's happening to Wong, which I don't hate as much yet. I don't think that he's been completely assassinated as a character, but comedy does not necessarily equal stupidity. You can have a character be fully aware of the physical world and normal laws and all of that stuff and still be part of that supernatural aspect of things. And how does that play a part? You can do that. I think there's better jokes to be made. I just think in this case, it's bad jokes. For example, him being part of the underground fighting ring in Macau or wherever it was. Hilarious. Actually hilarious. I don't mind it at all. The Shang-Chi element of it. I don't mind at all. I think it's great. But it's how that is handled in here. Oh, he's part of this underground fighting ring. How about we bring the abomination into it and all of that? How do you explain him doing this? We just dumb him down a little. I agree with you. I don't think works. It does the character a disservice, if anything else. Yeah, because it could have been something like, we just had a bit of a hustle going, we pretend to fight, I pretend to beat him, we split the cash. Something like that. He'll get the cash when he gets out of prison. You can make a joke out of the fact that he doesn't understand the whole concept of contractual law, as in writing stuff down, because he's from a order that does everything by sworn oath. My word is my bond sort of thing. But then this show reveals that he worked in Target before he was the librarian at Camertage, so he should have some idea. Again, I think that was just a detail that we aren't supposed to think too much about and just find it amusing from the incongruity of it. I think because Wong has only ever been a sporting character, 
then his presence in any movie or TV show is always seen through the perspective of somebody else. And as a result of that, he hasn't properly developed his own distinct identity, because every time he crops up, he is used for what the story requires of him, rather than acting in a particular way that would be consistent with his character, precisely because his character hasn't been particularly consistent so far. I wouldn't necessarily say it does him a disservice, but at the same time, I do feel that it's necessary to start portraying some consistency in who he actually is. Yeah, and picking up on what you said about we're not supposed to think too much about it, I'm never a fan of when writers assume that, that we're not going to think about what's just went on, we're just going to laugh at it and move on. Which I think is the case for a lot of people, to be fair. And there's lots of people that don't obsess about these things as much as I do. But still, if you give it a bit more thought, you could replace it with another joke that would be even funnier and would be in keeping with who these people are and the world that you've set up. I know that we leaned into that a lot during the Thor discussion, Cat, where Aaron was talking about the tendency to just abandon what came before because it doesn't suit my plot. This new thing that I'm doing now suits my plot, so everything else be damned. And it's almost like they're doing that here. Which is a shame, especially in a connected universe where we're just getting inconsistencies cropping up all over the shop. There doesn't seem to be any gatekeeping on what's supposed to happen or how it's supposed to all work, which could get worse as we move through the phases. Other cases, we had shape-shifting identity theft, which is an idea I really liked. I thought that was a really interesting concept, using shape-shifting as a way of committing fraud. But it's a really clever idea. It's a really specific to superpowered problem because identity theft is a huge problem in the world we have scam artists and stuff. But what if a scam artist can pass themselves off as the person that they're claiming to be and believably do that? So yeah, I like that idea. Using it as an online dating thing. And I actually thought the resolution where, yes, this guy would actually believe that he could get with this celebrity. That was a nice way to resolve the case. Yeah, just prove your client's innocence by demonstrating what an utter moron he is. Yeah, and you could tell that was a good catharsis for Jen as well. She'd probably oh, dealt yeah. with this crap for years in her old job, and this is her chance to get back at him under the pretense of helping him as well. Just the perfect middle finger to someone that's just deeply unpleasant. Yes, he would believe this, because he is that delusional. Although the judge sentencing the light elf to prison for impersonating a judge, a judge can't just arbitrarily hand out sentences during a case. They have to be accused of it and go through the system before that happens. Hire a lawyer for season two, guys. Have one in the room, perhaps. Because I'm not a lawyer, but I understand some of these things, because I've watched legal shows where... There was legal consultants and lawyers writing them. They definitely need to beef that side of it up. If it's going to be a fun lawyer show, it needs to actually be a fun lawyer show. Yeah, that's really what I was hoping for out of the show. That's what I wanted out of it. Like I said, I'm a big fan of legal shows, generally speaking, whether it's more of a comedy aspect or a drama aspect or a dramedy aspect in the case of Suits. It's often quite funny. I was hoping that we would get into the meat of all of these questions that the show asks. And we do, but... There's a lot of distractions too. That was a disappointment for me. Yeah, definitely. When the show was actually getting made, for a while, I did think that it would actually have been quite funny had the show just been a completely straight legal drama. It's absolutely no reference to the rest of the MCU, aside from the fact that its central character just happens to be this seven-foot green-skinned muscle babe. But then nobody actually making any reference to that. It was just something that was just there, which probably wouldn't have done much for the actual development of the MCU at all, but I just thought it would be really funny, because I'm childish like that. Well, there's a halfway house in what you're saying. They could 
still do the cameos, still do the cases related to those cameos, but just fully lean into the fact that this is a law comedy and perhaps abandon the superhero aspects almost entirely. So yeah, that would have been an interesting approach because I think it was sold as Ally McBeal with superpowers initially. I think that's what people were expecting and didn't necessarily get. Some people were obviously going to be happier with it than others, but I want to more of the law stuff because I don't watch a lot of legal dramas or comedies. They have to have William Shatner in them before I'll maybe watch it. No, there's other ones that I'd quite like to watch as well. I've heard good things about suits and things. It is on my list, so maybe one day. But definitely with Boston Legal, I found myself riveted by the cases and I found myself riveted by the delivery of those cases. And the Daredevil show, it purposely avoided the courtroom stuff because I guess they thought that wasn't in the writer's strengths. You had the odd courtroom scene in episodes but it was mostly as a quick thing before they move on what the episode is actually about obviously you'd have the network tv version of daredevil where it'd be start of the episode someone walks through his doors to report something that they need help with in a legal sense there'd be some courtroom stuff he would beat people up and by the end it'd all be resolved you can see that structure there and she hulk could have almost been that show as well but it wasn't and i don't feel like it was fully confident in its legalness and i suppose considering how shallow some of the cases were it had a right to not be confident in its legal aspect megan the stallion cameo though i had no idea who she was until i watched that episode oh wow do you actually live under a rock <laughs> i'm like wong i live in a mystical nowhere land the mystical realms of Edinburgh, Scotland. Listen, I know who Megan the Stallion is. I think that this element is the most dated of this show. Looking back on this show at any other point other than 2022, people are going to look back at it and go, oh, wow, yeah, that was a very 2022 moment. It's a bit cringe. <laughs> I don't think that it adds very much to it other than it's a little fun nudge. And there's a lot of people who really like Megan. So it's kind of like a... Yay, she's in this. It's that kind of connectedness and non-connectedness of the MCU and the real world. Which celebrities are real? This parallel universe that exists in the MCU, basically. How much of it overlaps with our world kind of thing. Does the existence of Megan the Stallion in the MCU imply that BTS are also real in the MCU? <laughs> That's what I want to know. I do think that it was a step too far into cringe territory, but also it's kind of harmless. It doesn't detract from anything. It also doesn't add to anything. It was just a little funny moment. Yeah, why is she in this courtroom for this random small-scale identity fraud situation? Why not? Shush. <laughs> because it's funny. That almost goes back to what you were talking about with the influencer thing. It's something that in five years, no one will really know anything about. I don't know about that. That's optimistic of you, but we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> what I mean is, in terms of the transitory nature of these sorts of things, the celebrity of a given influencer's probably relatively short-lived. Maybe if you watch the show again in five to ten years, Megan Thee Stallion won't be a household name. She's not a household name in this household anyway. I had no idea who she was until I saw this show. And then I looked her up and I was like, okay, you're a singer and whatever. I'm not deep into celebrity culture. It's not a thing I'm into. It's not a thing I follow. I try to spend as little time on social media as humanly possible, so... I miss these things. We had the Mr. Immortal case with his many exes that he was married to and committed to. Broken record, but they had a real opportunity here to explore the idea of immortality and commitment and what does that mean for an immortal and how they approach relationships. Instead, it was just a funny bit where he jumps out the window and kills himself every time he's sick of a wife or a husband. And again, he's 
I suppose like most of the male characters in the show, he's just disgusting. He can't even apologise and make 20 seconds or 15 seconds initially, but 20 seconds of total eye contact while he's apologising. Well, Mr. Immortal is a third tier Avenger, I think. I think he's one of the founding members of the West Coast Avengers. Mm-hmm. Not in this, obviously. He's just some immortal guy. But it also made me question the MCU in general. Is it just now full of superpowered people? As opposed to them just cropping up every now and again. It seems like one in ten people have superpowers. Obviously the show skews heavy towards that because she is leading a superhero law division. But no, I think the ubiquity of superpowers or people with various gifts and stuff, I think it's congruent with the rest of the MCU. In the same vein, all the heroes that we know have popped up. Suddenly they have an origin story and whatever. I didn't think that it was that egregious. In superhero stories in general, we have become conditioned to expect anyone who develops any kind of superpowers to immediately abandon any semblance of personal life and take up the existence of a costume vigilante. And so to see people who are just completely normal people, aside from having these abilities, it's not something that we're actually used to uh, because that notion is so rarely explored. Far more common is, is their path towards heroism rather than the path to just kind of carry on as normal and just want to be left alone. Yeah, or in the case of Mr. Immortal, become rich and marry a bunch of people, apparently. He's just got a lot of love to give, but only for a certain amount of time. Until he gets bored of giving it and wants to give it to someone else. That's it. (laughs) Could have been that conversation about, have you ever tried to put up with someone for infinite lifetimes? No, you just can't do it. It doesn't seem like he sticks with them for very long because a lot of his exes are relatively young or seem relatively young. I think that was more to suggest that his philandering nature wasn't actually relevant to his immortality and was more the fact that he just gets bored with women very quickly and lacks the emotional maturity to actually end things. And men. There is one man in the mix. And men, yes. True. He's an equal opportunity sort of a guy. He doesn't swing one way or the other. Bisexuals exist. We. Yeah. And I did like how they just didn't address it in any way. They were just in amongst the, I don't know what the collective term would be for a bunch of exes, but in amongst them was just a man just sitting there casually. No one batted an eyelid, which considering the overt messaging in other parts of the show surprised me, actually. Yeah, them. I'm giving them a compliment there for doing this. I have expected you to segue to, this is why this is a bad thing. No, no, no. I'm not totally dumping on the show, or I'm trying not to. The plot did just exist to address the non-existent tension between Mallory and Nikki, though. The episode starts by Nikki saying, I don't really like her, she doesn't really like me. That comes back to what you were saying about the supporting cast, Cat. They're almost non-entities in some cases, and there's some kind of hurdle for them to get over as characters, but we don't see that before this, so it doesn't really mean anything. And then... It's resolved off screen anyway. They just cut away to whatever Jen's doing and they come back and then Nikki solved the problem without actually being shown to solve the problem. Resolution's off screen. Never a fan of that either. It is one of those quite frustrating decisions when it gets made. Because you usually feel like the writers couldn't actually figure out how to resolve something. Yeah, which is fine. Well, it's not fine that they couldn't figure out how to resolve it. You shouldn't start a plot if you don't know how you're going to resolve it. But as a showcase of Nikki's unconventional thinking and Mallory being impressed by that, there's something to that. And I think that Ginger Gonzaga, that plays Nikki, really good at playing that. The way she was sitting there just excitedly telling everyone what she'd worked out for them. And I was reading that the character was based on the actor. So she was essentially playing herself, I think or at least a version of herself within the show itself. So yeah, that all worked. And then you have that bit at the end where Mallory says, I've got a child and I'm opening up to you about this. And I didn't discount the idea you might have a child, so not really a surprise to me when you're telling me that. Again, a little bit lazy. 
Is that what you were talking about, Kat, when you said the supporting character has been a bit... Exactly. Yes. Thinking about her colleagues. I think Nikki kind of stands out among all of them, but thinking about her colleagues, you get someone like Renee Elise Goldsberry, who's famous for Hamilton and things like that. She's a great actor and she's there for a minute, I guess. She's the (laughs) black lawyer who's tougher and helps mentor Jen a little bit in this more high-flying world of lawyers that she's not really used to. And I was just really surprised with how little she gets to do. People like her family, I think, were fine. The balance of that, I think, was right. I would not have liked much more than what we got off her family. They provide a good backdrop for her, but they don't necessarily add very much to driving the plot forward in any real way. But the people who are in her immediate surroundings, her friends, her colleagues, all of that just left a little bit to be desired and maybe all of it kind of comes down to i don't know that it's laziness i would hesitate to use that word but it's just the things that were kind of brought forward in this story versus what could have been it's just choices were made and then i don't doubt all of these actors are good at what they do it's just that i don't even think that they got a chance to shine and to show what they're capable of well there was an interesting hint of resentment from mallory to jen early on the idea that she's just been brought in and she gets all the cool cases because she happens to be she hulk and that even supports your idea of women have to work twice as hard in the workplace even though she's been effectively supplanted by another woman but this other woman has the advantage of being a superhero or a hulk at least and it's the idea of mallory's accomplishments are essentially forgotten because someone that they can market comes into the mix and then I suppose the natural resolution of that arc is them coming to appreciate each other and Mallory realizing that oh no she is a really good lawyer but that doesn't really happen yeah I know it's only a nine episode 30 minute light-hearted comedy but still these things are here and I want to see them and you could be doing them and you're not you could be replacing stuff that didn't need to be there with stuff that would be better. It seems like they just didn't have an eye on that as they were making the show. Did it generally seem to me that there were a lot of ideas in the show, but in the end it turned out being a few too many, because they end up not being able to give really deep ideas their due consideration. And so it just ends up seeming that everything that took place seemed quite superficial, because whether it was a question about the fundamental legality of magic or just a basic sex joke. It was given equal prominence and equal consideration. Which, to be honest, actually was something that I did kind of enjoy about it. Because the whole thing was meant to be quite fun, then having too much introspection might have ruined that. But I do accept that it does end up seeming like things that it brings up just weren't thought through properly. Yeah, and something we always talk about on this podcast is whether the flaws that something has are deal breakers for us or whether we're able to enjoy it in spite of those or whether it manages to make up for them in some way. And I think that depending on the property, we've individually arrived at different perspectives on those things and some things work for some people, some things work for others. Aaron is very well buying into the notion of hating fun and all it stands Mm -hmm. for. That's his thing. I find that I engage with a certain type of fun, although that certain type of fun isn't consistent so with this show whenever it was trying to have fun and just get me to accept that fun at face value i kept digging into it 
in thinking about what was behind that. So that's why I couldn't laugh at the joke about Wong not understanding that the Book of American Laws was the thing that they were going to be focusing on rather than this mystic book that no one else but him has access to and things like that. So it's always going to be a personal thing. And I feel like comedy above everything else is subjective. I think it's a lot more subjective than a lot of other things. I struggle with comedy a lot of the time. That was the problem. The show just wasn't making me laugh when it thought it was supposed to make me laugh, which I acknowledge is a personal thing, but at the same time, it was something I found it difficult to get past. I laughed quite a bit. I thought it was very funny, generally. So I didn't have an issue with the comedy so much. The idea that some of the stuff that was presented as a joke, or rather the simplicity of it was the joke, you know, those issues that we were talking about earlier, the complexity of gender inequality and all of that, the feminism 101 of it all being kind of the basis for some of the jokes, that was a bit whatever for me. I just didn't think that it worked in the way that perhaps it was intended. Maybe because a lot of that stuff Jen says herself in the first episode or so when she's like, this is the stuff that I deal with every single day. I'm not bothered by it. Her version of saying, that's the secret, I'm always angry. Mm -hmm. That kind of being like, ah, ha, ha, you know, and it's like, ah, ha, ha, I'm so tired. <laughs> <laughs> but that's just me on that one. One thing I did like that the show addressed, and I have issues with the way they executed it as well, but the whole concept of relationships, which is something the MCU seems to largely stray away from other than a couple of pointed examples, but the adult characters in this universe just never seem to consider the whole concept of pairing up with someone or romance of any kind, whereas this was one of the central things in the show. There's a lot of central things in the show, but they do a whole episode about it where she decides to give online dating a go and has limited success as Jennifer, which is, I guess, one of those in-universe things that you're supposed to accept because if Tatiana Maslany was really on a dating app, she would get a lot of... Whatever direction they need to swipe to be positive. Yeah, the idea that people don't want to date her is ridiculous. <laughs> but that's the conceit you have to buy into. It's the idea of, in this universe, she's considered plain, I guess, <laughs> on a superficial level. Whereas yeah. She-Hulk is considered incredibly hot. And the idea is, as soon as she puts the She-Hulk picture on, her phone blows up with all the notifications. One joke I did definitely laugh at was, you have no matches. Why is that an alert? I thought that was a really funny joke. There was the odd thing that made me laugh. The problem I had with the execution of it is it's a montage of horrible date after horrible date, just to make the point of, well, dating in your 30s sucks, doesn't it? Yeah, I suppose so, but what about it? What are you actually saying about it other than, it sucks? There's all this stuff behind it, the whole shallow aspect of that kind of online dating that she was engaging in, the whole idea that people are only after the superficial aspect of it. They only swipe because someone's picture looks good to her. People cultivate this very specific image of themselves online, which extends beyond dating profiles, really. It's just online people cultivate personas in general. They want themselves to be seen as the idealised version of themselves. People post pictures of their great adventure holiday on Facebook, but they don't share anything that's more quote-unquote real, things like that. And then that's actually a great thing to play with with a superhero, or at least a powered person. The whole idea of you have to cultivate a superhero identity that is then presented to the public in a certain way. And that can either be accepted or rejected by the people that it needs to. We've seen... Loads of examples of that in various, maybe not MCU things, but in various other things. Spider-Man's constant issues with people hating him or people trying to rubbish him, things like that. So there was a real opportunity for it to say a lot about identity and about 
making connections and about the reality of how you're perceived outside of how you want to be perceived. And it just didn't do much of it. All it just told us was dating in your 30s sucks, apparently. And the men on dating apps are horny. (laughs) Yeah, and so are the women, apparently, going by Jennifer, certainly. So I applaud them for at least including that as part of the makeup of it and the fact that she was open about certainly discussing these things and her and Nikki, they would have their chats about the postmortem of her dates and things like that. So I enjoyed all that, but as with everything, I wanted it to say something about it and I don't feel like it did. I find it ridiculous that it's supposed to be that people won't accept Jen for who she is before the She-Hulk identity emerges. I just find that very hard to swallow, to be honest with you. It is hard, and it's hard right now, especially because all the apps and stuff, they encourage the superficiality of looking for a partner. And it's, well, is not the whole point to find a connection? What it does is kind of highlights, first of all, I mean, we haven't had a character in the MCU be actively dating because they're always trying to save the world. So it's a way to lower the stakes a little bit. She's got a new job, and also she's looking for a boyfriend. Just normal people things. Except she's also She-Hulk, but mostly it's normal people problems. And that's new. It's kind of fresh for the MCU. So I didn't mind it, generally. A little on the nose that the guy who she went on a date with turns out to be the bad guy who wanted to steal her blood and blah, blah, blah. Okay, sure. It is very much played for the obvious joke that it is and they backtrack from that immediately they're like oh yeah if we wanted to do that we could do that all of us thought it that it was possible just because he just kept returning he had way too much screen time so something was up with that guy it serves to foil the whole identity integration between jen and she hulk and people wanting her for one and not the other and how can she be both Which is also a general metaphor for people containing multitudes. You can be sweet and you can also be spicy and that should be fine. But it's the expectations and the image that people build of you when you're dating and especially the superficial aspect of, well, I gotta make up my profile and write a bio and what image do you present and things like that. So it kind of serves to enrich all of that, which is fine. Again, I just like more of that. I think that just comes down to the length of the show being what it is. Normally, a show like that would have the full 20 episodes of a season or whatever to flesh out those ideas. And maybe that's the solution to a lot of our problems with it, generally. More time. Yeah. Yeah. All of my criticisms for the show are certainly, oh, well, more of that would have been great. But also, when that's all the time you have... You kind of have to pick and choose your battles that you just kind of have to. It's just a fact. So if we get a second season, perhaps let's see how that is dealt with. We'll get to that in a minute. But I just don't know how a She-Hulk Daredevil relationship will work. I don't see either of them being willing to move for each other. I certainly don't see Matt Murdock thriving in L.A. Maybe she could move to New York. But again, I just don't see it. So is it a once every whenever they're in the other person's town, they hook up? So it just kind of raises the question of will Jen find love, actually? Because it'd be nice and she's super cute and she deserves it. You go get it, girl. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, a sort of casual connection with Matt Murdock. If we're both in the same town and we both happen to be single, then we'll do this. Fair game, yeah. We'll go beat up a gang and then hook up afterwards and that will be our thing. Assuming we're both in the same place at that point. Then you have the superficiality of it is where the guy, once he sees the image wear off the next morning, he's just not interested anymore. And that's a bit of an indictment of the 
always putting the best filtered pictures of yourself on the internet and things like that, which people definitely do. I don't. I don't put any pictures of myself online, really. <laughs> and no one wants to see them. There's no filter that makes me look good, I'm afraid. But I know that people do that. It's the This was the eighth selfie I took before I was comfortable posting it, that kind of stuff. I've heard people talk about that in real life. So yeah, I get it. I get what they're saying. But what else are you saying? Nothing, apparently. In the terms of the picking your battles thing, yeah, it's a more refined focus for this season. Here's what we're going to tackle on these nine episodes. And we're going to do it in some detail. That would have been better. Andrew, any thoughts on dating in your 30s? I know you're married. <laughs> yeah, and to be honest, given what dating sounds like nowadays, I am so incredibly glad about that. It <laughs> sounds so complicated and just so much effort. I'm very fortunate in that I, I never actually did the whole online dating thing. Yeah, I've never tried it either. So it's not something I have any personal experience with. But just from what I was saying about the whole superficiality of it all, it seems like something that would be a nightmare to try to navigate and have to second guess everyone's intentions and what they really think about you in comparison to what they're actually saying about you. I'm not saying directly to you and what they might be saying about you behind your back. God, it just sounds like a nightmare. <laughs> Just from what you're saying about being an indictment of presenting this artificial best self towards the internet, I'm not entirely certain that that was really the intention. I more interpreted it as uh, another facet of the dichotomy that existed between Jen and, and She-Hulk, where she's seen as either one or the other, rather than just the same person in different forms, and how people are always far more interested in She-Hulk. Whereas if Jen is even considered at all, then she's a very distant afterthought. And then after she hooks up with that guy, and then the next morning when he sees her as Jen, and then immediately bolts. I think that, that was more intended to make us think badly of him, rather than what Jen did in order to hook up with him in the first place. Yeah, I think that interpretation is valid as well. And I suppose there's a reading of it that is she wasn't being honest with him either. So is she blameless in this being misjudged stakes? I don't think she deserves that much judgment because I imagine that most people would take it as read that she isn't She-Hulk all the time. I think I think it's reasonable to assume that the average citizen in the MCU ha- has some basic comprehension of how the Hulk's powers operate, and it would be unreasonable to then assume that the same would apply to her. And following from that, I think people would generally assume that this woman doesn't look like She-Hulk all the time. There's also a human form that she has. And for this guy to then reject that is an indication of him being incredibly shallow. Yeah, and that's something he admits to when he's under oath. She's not my type. And that was it. If that's your lane, then whatever. I suppose it's not his fault that Jen, not as She-Hulk, wouldn't be for him. The problem is it doesn't really go into it because he doesn't seem to consider the fact that the human form exists because he's completely surprised by it. The next morning, he's like, who are you? Exactly. Just what I'm saying is, is that I think that level of surprise is not really reasonable. No. And again, it's something the show doesn't address. She could ask him, what did you think? Did you think I was She-Hulk all the time? He's forced to answer the question. Instead, he just leaves and then it's not brought up again. And obviously, it's supposed to naturally lead into the Josh non-relationship as it is. He's the guy that appears to like her for who she is, whichever form she's in. And then it turns out he's a plant who's there to steal her blood, as happens. But up until the point that she found that out, she just thought he was a decent guy. And then she thought he was a decent guy who ghosted her and she couldn't figure out why. Which I thought was enough for him, to be honest. 
Yeah, well, there was one aspect that did bug me a little bit was in the recap of one of the episodes, there was one shot in Hulk King's sterile lab trying to synthesize this serum and then getting a biggest needle to steal Jin's blood with. And then that is then immediately juxtaposed with her meeting Josh. <laughs> to me, it's like, okay, you're really not being very subtle about this now, are you? Yeah, it's a standard thing. We've watched enough TV that when we watch the previously on, we know, oh God, they're doing this this week. Okay. It's just the way it is. Exactly. <laughs> that's something the show could have played with as well. And it did a little bit later on. It was well, an episode later when one of the guys that attacked her showed up at the retreat. And it was like, oh yeah, he was in the previously on. Remember him? Like, well, no, actually. Thank you for reminding me. Just some guy that attacked her. I mean, you'd think at that point you'd say, oh yeah, sorry, I was hired to steal your blood. I don't know why. But in the case of Josh... I was pointed in that direction of him having some kind of hidden agenda pretty early on. But at the same time, I thought it was well done enough because it did lead naturally into her questioning, am I worthwhile when not She-Hulk? And then we get to, as we previously discussed, the whole retreat thing where she explores that. So I thought the Josh thing was quite good, but I think they made him too nice, if that makes sense. He was almost too idyllic, so it made you immediately suspicious of him. Or made me immediately suspicious of him. Yes, he's a really nice guy. (laughs) Yeah, that's when we are generally aware of the kind of people who refer to themselves as nice guys usually end up like. Yeah, although the fact that she didn't have some kind of reckoning with him, do you think that was fine? Or do you think there should have been some kind of scene where she confronted him somehow? I was actually okay with the just delete his number and forget about him thing, because that is a bit more real than this Hollywood moment of catharsis. Because sometimes you just don't get that in life. Sometimes people just leave you hanging and you never get to resolve that. Obviously, it's not dramatically convenient, but it's real. Yeah, because the thing of her just deleting his number and then forgetting about him, that was her basically declaring, to borrow a phrase, you have no power over me. And there really wouldn't have been anything to be gained from a big confrontation with him. Because nothing would come out in, in that interaction that wasn't revealed by other means. So just doing that would end up seeming just completely superfluous and would just end up being time that could have been better used exploring more pertinent ideas which i think as we have quite conclusively established is one of the show's primary issues yeah cat did you need that catharsis or were you happy that you didn't get it no it's fine what would she have done punched him in the face Eh. (laughs) i didn't particularly need a confrontation it Sucked that it wasn't really a real connection because she needed that, but that was the whole point of it, so fine. What I would have liked, and I suppose it's the elephant in the room, of there was an attempt to deal with that subplot in the finale, except it's all blown to bits. Yeah. We will on purpose. Cover that. We could have gotten closure in the form of a clumsy fist fight in Emile's barn between her and the Hulk King and all the fake Reddit people. Maybe that could have been closure, but I agree with the writers that I don't want that. No, thank you. I'm okay. Whether or not the finale works, it's a different question. It's ballsy, that's for (laughs) sure. It does something that no other MCU thing has dared, which is purely because of the fourth wall breaking format, is self-examining some tendencies within the superhero genre and just kind of going, nah, they don't necessarily do better, in my opinion. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's messy. I spent a lot of the finale kind of frowning because I was like, oh, I don't know about this. (laughs) Gotta know that they ever reach a point where it's 100% a satisfying conclusion. It's weird. Sorry for the segue, but I guess we're talking about this now. Well, the finale is a natural point to come on to it. The finale, the finale. 
<laughs> I'm not going to go first here. I need to collect myself a little bit. Okay. <laughs> Kat, since you were talking about it, let's talk about why you were frowning. What was causing you to frown? So it starts off the way it starts off, and it's kind of going the perhaps expected way of a big blowout somewhere, having a big battle. It starts with an interesting premise, and something that I really didn't think a Marvel show would really go for, seeing as they tend to be quite family-friendly. But really, Jen is the victim of revenge porn, is what's going on. Yeah, And I really didn't think that was gonna be a thing and then they went there and i was like oh okay um sure after that though the way that it's handled the way that we go about it we kind of forget about that and in my opinion for example i think her hulking out was entirely reasonable yes she might have been a little scary but she didn't really hurt anybody and i'm pretty sure that anybody who is the victim of something like this feels all of that anger and to see that externalized is powerful really that's not dealt with though so it's left hanging it does link back to the idea of you won't get away with this where men would yeah and she doesn't get away with it and it tears her life apart i was on board for the first half of the finale where it was this expression of raw anger and emotion tore your life apart and now you have to yeah. find a way to put it back together and you have to find a way to make yourself credible again. That yeah. first half of the finale is that I'm here for this. I think this is a great furthering of the ideas that the show has been playing with. And I think there's a lot to do here. And then the second half of the finale happens, which yeah. I'll leave you to continue <laughs> on with. So that first half, it actually kind of reminded me of a panel I went to see at my first ever Worldcon, which is the World Science Fiction Convention. It was in London in 2014, and I could only attend for a day. And one of the panels I went to was about anger and how in fiction, certainly, but also just in life, it's often seen as a not valid emotion. You can't be seen to be angry. In Jen's case, it tears her life apart. The Hulk was definitely a character that was brought up on that panel about how if we're seen to be visibly angry, the yelling, any sort of outburst is immediately kind of held against you. But it is a valid emotion. It serves a purpose, but it's how we as a society have pushed it to the side. It's not seemly to be angry. And especially for a woman. And the flip side of that is men with vulnerability, isn't it? Exactly. This emotion is a natural reaction. That's what emotions are. You react to something that's happening. And not being able to express that, especially as a woman, is crushing. And that first half really brought back that conversation in my mind. And I was like, oh, yeah, actually, I don't think we've progressed very much at all from that. It's still very much an open question. What does it mean for a character who's basically powered by anger to walk civilized society? What does that mean? So the second half of the finale, at first, I was just really not about the very clumsy way of bringing all the various subplots together. Oh, yeah, so it's this, and also this, and also this, and Emil is behind it all. Okay. Or he's an ignorant bystander at best. Uh, Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, I'm just gonna sit here with my platitude posters and rake some money in, I suppose. It's not a bad gig. It's a good racket if you can get it, yeah. (laughs) Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. As far as speaking engagements are concerned, whatever. Sure, go for it. (laughs) But Then the whole meta situation, Jen breaking through the Disney Plus menu 
to go into a making off documentary so she can confront the writers. And then the writers are just kind of like, oh, yeah, no big deal. She-Hulk is here. (laughs) Wait a minute. Can we talk about the fact that this is impossible? And then Disney, Marvel, whatever, poking fun at themselves with Kevin, presumably Kevin Feige, turning out to be an AI robot situation where all entertainment is decided algorithmically. I have a few issues with this. So first of all, I think it's a valid concern that algorithms are dictating entertainment at the moment, yes, but not in this way. So it's both trying to have the cake and eat it too, of poking fun at perhaps the YouTubes and the TikToks of the world, which are governed by algorithms. It absolutely is a valid issue and concern at the moment of what keeps you on a platform, what you keep seeing, what you keep turning your attention to is dictated by an all-powerful, mysterious algorithm that even the founders and CEOs of those companies don't understand. They don't understand it. You ask the CEO of YouTube how the algorithm works, she can't answer. (laughs) And so that concern is valid. Okay, what does it mean that we don't even get a say? Or stories are just kind of by the numbers now. Sure. But Marvel's problem isn't this. If you want to poke fun at yourself and be like, oh, maybe we are a bit formulaic at the moment. Maybe the 25 plus movies we've released so far do have a pattern and maybe this is getting a bit much and how can we change it and all of those things. Yes, but people are making those decisions. People, humans, humans with sometimes money for brains. It's okay to ask that question, but to minimize it and be tongue in cheek, oh, haha, there's a robot and his name is Kevin. Okay. uh. (laughs) I don't know how I feel about all of it. The idea of a fictional character gaining the knowledge that they are fictional and trying to gain control of their own narrative. As a trope, I quite enjoy. It's the stranger than fiction of it all. Someone being suddenly made aware. In Jen's case, she's been aware the whole time because the whole show was fourth wall breaking. So she knows that there's an audience. I just don't know that removing the writers from the equation is the writers and the producers and the studio execs and the people with money for brains who just kind of look at, oh, well, big battles seem to sell tickets. So let's have a big battle in this. You have to have a big blowout at some point. It's people making those choices, not (laughs) algorithms, not devices, not AIs. So that was the moment that I was just like, "Eh, I don't know. You had something and then you didn't, which is my problem with the show, generally speaking, is you had something and then you didn't. And ultimately, I'm not really sure about how I feel about how the show ends. Okay, shrug. And as a caveat, and I suppose we'll get to that in a minute, but there's something on Uncanny Valley about She-Hulk's form, the green form. And I just don't know how I feel about all of that, especially when she breaks through to the real world, quote unquote. I just don't know. But yeah. What about your thoughts? She-Hulk isn't the first show to smash out of the confines of the universe it lives in and confront the people that made it. There's an episode of Seinfeld, apparently, where that happens. And the actual writers, or one of the writers anyway, is in the episodes. Sitcoms would do it all the time. I remember an episode of The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air where Will Smith, playing Will Smith, in character, points out that the house has no ceiling. Stuff like that. There's 
all sorts of examples of forward wall breaking. Boston Legal that I referenced earlier, they would constantly reference being aware of being in a show. You'd have Denny Crane referencing his other career as a starship captain quite often. (laughs) There's an episode where they turn up to a meeting on the wrong day because the time slot's been moved. We used to have these on Mondays. Now it's Wednesdays or whatever the day was. They make those references. There's often been these winks and nods to the audience and fourth wall stuff. I know one of the bases for this show was Fleabag, or certainly that was cited as one of the influences, and apparently there's a lot of fourth wall breaking in that. And the examples I gave there, they're all isolated things in their own contained universe, so it doesn't really matter. One of the issues I had with this is this is a shared cinematic universe so once again i know i'm not supposed to think too much about it but i did i thought too much about it and here's where i'm at now the mcu we're watching is a fictional world that lives inside another fictional world we're just not seeing the layer that has the kevin artificial intelligence calling the shots so it kind of is encouraging me not to be invested in this universe after this point because it's all fake. I know it's all fake because I'm watching it on television and on cinema screens, (laughs) but it's fake within a fake thing. So what's to stop She-Hulk if she appears in Secret Wars, for example, just putting a stop to all the carnage that surrounds her and saying, I'm going to ask for a rewrite. Next time Thanos wipes out half the universe, let's undo that by asking for a rewrite. We don't like this. We don't like what these writers are doing to us. You've got Deadpool coming up. You've got She-Hulk in it. They both have this ability. They can both just ask for a rewrite. I know there was a hand-wavy line where Kevin said, oh yeah, we'll fix this. You won't be able to do this again. But how many times have we seen abilities removed from people and they get them back? So you can get around that if you you really need to. Another fundamental issue I had with it is it was trying to sell me on the fact that this is a cleverer show than it actually is. So it's Mm -hmm. saying that, okay, all this cliche plotting about blood stealing and someone turning themselves into a Hulk and all this business, that was all designed to build up to this moment where we subvert it. But it doesn't earn its subversion because I believe that this is the kind of show that would take that sort of plot seriously. It'd be different if it was something that was contained within a single episode, but you're asking me to sit through eight episodes of quote-unquote bad plotting before you deliver the punchline. An example of this I always use for you didn't think we'd really do something this bad, did you, is the season three Doctor Who finale, the first season with John Sims Master in it. In that episode, Martha is lying about the fact that she's looking for a gun that can render Time Lords incapable of regenerating. So she injects the Master, then someone can shoot him in the head and he's dead. He won't regenerate. And then it turns out, do you really think the Doctor would get her to do this? And I was sitting there thinking, yeah, actually, I believed that that was what was going to happen. So you don't earn the fact that you've come up with a super clever ending, because it isn't a clever ending. Because I believed that you were capable of doing this. I didn't believe you were giving me something deeper than that so it didn't work for me and then when the rewrite happens you don't see any of the consequences of any of it anyway so suddenly todd isn't a hulk anymore blonsky's no longer in the abomination form and he agrees to go back to prison and then she says i'll see you in court to todd and then you see her going into the courtroom and the season ends so there's no real ending to any of it and then the thing is if you cut out the blood stuff i'm okay with the internet trolls being after her thing and the weapon they deploy against her is completely ruining her life. That's actually a really good stake-setting plot point. And she makes a closing argument to Kevin. Yes, these are my stakes. We don't need this. And also, do we seriously think the MCU has learned from this and that we're going to put an end to the third act punch-ups that we keep getting? You've acknowledged the problem, but unless you actually fix it, the acknowledging of it is meaningless. Obviously, we don't know that they're not going to fix it, but this was in production while they were still doing that. So does it work? It doesn't work for me. 
I don't think it was the entire season that the finale was attempting to subvert. I think it was only the finale itself when it got to the climactic moment and then just became a gigantic free-for-all. It was only then and the MCU's tendency of having dimly lit CGI heavy punch-ups as a climactic moment. Although the problem with the episode taking that moment and then metafictionally declaring it to be, okay, this is completely ridiculous, we're not doing this, it kind of falls a bit flat because that's not where the series was going. Because there wasn't any indication that it was going to have that kind of resolution. And then to tack that on as a false ending for the sole purpose of then subverting it, it just doesn't make any sense. When Jen is talking to Kevin and they're looking at the composition of the scene, okay, increased lighting, this guy doesn't have any powers anymore, whole thing's just going to be a bit calmer, a bit more rational. But to take the piss out of climax that was completely ridiculous within a second climax that is also completely ridiculous, that isn't actually metafiction. That's honestly kind of sloppy writing, I think. <laughs> Because it's trying to sell us on this false resolution that doesn't have any purpose other than to be false. I think in doing so, it just ends up completely undermining itself. And also the whole thing about her looking for Kevin. Obviously, we are to assume that she's referring to Kevin Feige when all the writers are like, whoa, no one sees Kevin, no one speaks to Kevin. We are aware of that because we're the kind of people who follow the productions of these kind of things and so are aware of who Kevin Feige is. But I don't think it's reasonable to to expect the average viewer to have that kind of in-depth knowledge of the behind-the-scenes stuff in the MCU. And as a result of that, the attempted joke just ends up falling flat, because it ends up not being a joke. Yeah, as opposed to, say, Supernatural, where they leave their show and confront their writers, but by the time they do that episode, you can reasonably assume that your long-term audience has bought into all of this stuff. Exactly, yes. And also, just as a random aside, I was also distracted by the Kevin reveal, because it reminded me of this animated series called Final Space, where one of the characters in that is an obnoxious, floating, spherical AI drone named Kevin. (laughs) And I just could not stop thinking about that throughout the entire scene. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's totally coincidence, and it's neither here nor there. But think about that, the image of the algorithm Kevin in my head is completely overwritten by the image of Final Space Kevin. Well, whatever gets you through the day. <laughs> I do think to an extent the season was building to that, though, because we did have all those end of episode, ooh, there's someone with a needle, what do they want our blood for? And then turns out, oh yeah, we're going to abandon this plot because it's stupid. Well, yeah, it was always stupid, but you also had me looking at it for however many episodes, so could you have just not done it instead, rather than having to get rid of it? Because it's a long time to sit with something to then be told, oh yeah, we've decided this is stupid, so we're not doing that. There certainly were indications that they were going to build towards something, but again, what was presented as the thing that they were building towards, I don't think properly tied in with what we'd seen so far. And we were just expected to accept something completely out of it, purely so that they could highlight how completely and utterly ridiculous it is. Yeah, and it just makes me wonder what happens after this, if they do a season two. Is she going to be constantly shouting for Kevin, even though she can't get out anymore? She's going to be, come on, Kevin, don't do this to me. That kind of stuff. Is that going to keep happening? I was reminded of the final scene in Last Action Hero, which is a film that I absolutely love. After Arnie's character, Jack Slater, as he's called in the film, gets a taste of the real world, he starts to understand the tropes of the world that he lives in. And when he goes back, he punches through the glass door and he he doesn't feel a thing because it's his world again. And his boss yells at him and he just tells him to shut up. No, you're a trope. Don't 
conform to what the writers want you to do. Is Jennifer going to be doing that from now on? Is there going to be that kind of awareness? I'm not indulging in this plot because she has that awareness. She could just sit back and say, I'm not doing this because she knows. There's a bit of a problem in a shared universe, I think. Obviously, it'll never be brought up again, probably. It's certainly not in something that she hulks in that isn't her own thing, but it's going to bother me. It's going to keep bothering me every time she's there. I decided to take it that it's apparent that she is only able to invoke if if what is happening is just completely stupid and doesn't make any kind of narrative sense. But if the situation is anything other than that, then she just has to go along with it. And that was going to be thought through even that far, because as you say, it's probably just going to be quietly ignored and never used again. Yeah, I imagine she'll continue to break the fourth wall, but she'll never go outside oh, yeah. the show again. But I don't think the fourth wall breaks were well deployed. It almost felt like they were an afterthought in the episodes they were in. As in, they wrote a script and they're like, oh yeah, we've, we forgot to do that, so let's just chuck this in here. Because I don't think they ever really informed things too heavily. And sometimes they were just used to apologise for things they knew were bad. For example, the wedding episode. It's like, yeah, I know we all hate standalone wedding episodes, but we're doing this. You don't get away with doing a dull standalone wedding episode just because you've acknowledged it's a dull standalone wedding episode. And yes, the wedding episode for me was a complete slog. I did not like it. It doesn't make something good to acknowledge that it's bad, which is one of the major issues I have with this. So you've acknowledged that something is bad, but instead of actually just writing something good, you've just patted yourself on the back for acknowledging that it's bad. And that's not on as far as I'm concerned. But I can't know that I've brought up that the MCU is a fictional universe within a fictional universe. Is that sullied your commitment to its continuity from here on? No, because it's consistent. My issue with continuity is the X-Men movies. And we haven't yet breached that level. I take a lot of issue with when there is a purported universe that is then rebooted and there is then an attempt to merge those two and say that they were always meant to be the same thing. It grinds my gears very much. The MCU has not tried to do that at all. The thing is about this show, and it pains me to say this, but it doesn't matter. In two months, we'll all have forgotten everything about it. There's nothing about it that has any staying power. The jokes are a bit eh. The story's a bit eh. Jen is great. Tatiana Maslany is great. But how much can that carry an entire series? I don't know that it can. When I was watching with my partner, he was like, this is great. This is so much better than all the other MCU shows. And I was like, really? Because <laughs> we still talk about, we still talk about WandaVision. And we still talk about even something like Ms. Marvel, I think, has much more oomph to it than She-Hulk did. Yeah. I just don't know that the show means anything in the grand scheme of things. So I'm not mad at the whole, oh, it's a fictional universe within a fictional universe. Like, eh, the, sure. Right now, they're having the time of their life playing with multiverse type things. And so surely this is one of those. Everything since No Way Home has been, there's all these universes and there's all these alternate versions of people and the what-ifs of the world and Doctor Strange, of course, and all of those things. There's infinite universes in which these things could be true. And that does not negate or take away from the continuity of the MCU as we know it right now. Whether or not shenanigans ensue and messy X-Men type things, I don't see them going that way. For some reason, because of the overtness of the multiverse, I think it's less likely for that kind of fiasco, in my opinion. We'll see. <laughs> I'm keeping the door slightly open for shenanigans and fiascos. They're not entirely impossible. But yeah, ultimately, I'm not mad about it. It's fine, I think. 
inconsequential is what it is. Even if it bothered you, next week you won't be thinking about this. So it's fine. You know what I mean? Eh. Well, for my own continued sanity, I just have to ignore this show completely and, and yeah. forget about the fact that the fourth wall break is even possible because otherwise it will impact my enjoyment of the universe. And finally, you mentioned X-Men and the inconsistent continuity of that quote-unquote universe. The way that I manage to sleep at night in relation to that is that when you get to first class, first class is a complete reboot that essentially the other films don't exist. This is a complete reboot. And then you get to Days of Future Past. That's a sequel to that reboot where events played out in similar but not exactly the same ways. That's how you have Patrick Stewart saying, oh, by the way, I grew up with Raven and she was like a sister to me, where he didn't even pay much attention to her in the other films. Things like that. So that's how I managed to sleep at night when it comes to the X-Men stuff. Days of Future Past does not exist for me. (laughs) I've seen it the once. It made me very angry and never again. And then everything after that, no point. Just Oh, no, for sure. Nothing counts. For me, it stops at first class and maybe even... No, actually, no. First class. That's it. It's the perfect movie. Or Logan. Logan, sure. But Logan doesn't try to pretend that both things are the same. What infuriated me, gosh, this is turning into an X-Men rant, I'm so sorry. What infuriated me about Days of Future Past is the very explicit, oh yeah, the first class universe is a prelude to the original trilogy universe, but that doesn't make any sense. Xavier loses his legs a different way. You said the mystique thing. It's not the same. It's just not the same story. That's why you just pretend it's a similar universe and then it all goes away. But it isn't! I can't do it. I offered you an olive branch to help you sleep at night. Nah, buddy, don't worry. I've been trying for several years. I just can't. In terms of the X-Men universe, though, Deadpool, I think, used the fourth wall breaking in more purposeful ways because it was directly poking fun at the inconsistencies within that continuity. Things like, we're going to see the Professor. Which one? McAvoy or Stuart? I can't get these timelines resolved in my head and things like that. Or he's cutting about in the mansion and you see the cast of... It would have been Dark Phoenix at the time, just standing there and they close the door so that they don't see him. Stuff like that. I think they used the fourth wall breaking better in the Deadpool movies. It was also the fact that in those movies, other people noticed he was doing it. So he would talk to the camera and people would look at him and be like, who the hell are you talking to? So it was just something that he did and no one else could do. In this, it was almost like the world stops when she breaks the fourth wall, which is how it happens in a lot of things. There was a moment in the first episode, the first time that she does a fourth wall break, she almost looked surprised or confused about what she's just done. Like, she doesn't quite understand what just happened. Almost as though, as well as the transformation and super strength, she also then gained the power of metafictional awareness. I might be misremembering, but it did seem like there was a brief flash of Bruce noticing her do it, but not actually saying anything about it. Yeah, he looks at the camera as well with a kind of quizzical expression on his face, but no one else does. It seemed like that was just a thought that someone once had that was dropped in there, but then they forgot about it or didn't actually develop it in any way. Well, there's the bit where she isn't listening to her boss because she's talking to the audience and she doesn't know what question she was answering, but he doesn't notice that she's talking to the audience, so... That's a thing. I just have to forget this show existed in order to continue engaging with the MCUs. That's what I have to do. I'll never watch it again because I don't think it gives me any reason to come back to it. The last episode will just annoy me again. So I should probably stay away from that. It's all about healing and self-help, I suppose. So then the moment you hit upload on the edit of this, then everything about the show will just disappear from your brain. Once this podcast is published and in the world, (laughs) yeah, that's it. My... 
relationship to the show ends until they do season two. Because I will watch season two because I'm a completionist that way. I know the MCU has demonstrated time and time again that I can miss stuff if I want, but I'm not the sort of person to miss stuff. That's why we're still watching The Flash, isn't it, Andrew? Yes, it is. Mm-hmm. There's this masochistic compulsion to see it through to the end. Yeah. Because if you just give up, it's like it's defeated you. <laughs> and just refuse to allow that. No, I will beat you. You will not wear me down with your terrible writing and stupid plots. I will see this thing to the end. <laughs> the finale is going to be called Finish Line. I'm convinced of that. But that's another story. It's got to be. What else would it be? Maybe I'm a better writer than the Flash writers. I could comfortably believe that. Quite possibly. Or something to do with storms or lightning. Yeah. Anyway, let's have a brief moment about Matt Murdock. We have referenced him before, but this is Reboot Daredevil for the first time in the MCU. Well, not the first time. First time as Daredevil in the MCU. I was kind of right. Charlie Cox himself has confirmed that Daredevil Born Again is not season four of the show. It's season one of a new show. That just so happens to have him playing the character. I like this version of Matt Murdock. I've read a number of takes on Daredevil in the comics, so I think he's a versatile enough character. Andrew, you did say that there were some divisive reactions to him, but everybody I spoke to seemed to like him. The fact that he quips and jumps about during fights, I don't really have a problem with. The fact that he cracks jokes seems to have a lighter side to him than the... It wasn't quite relentless grimness of the Netflix show, but he's certainly less grim than he is in that show. So I was okay with that. Hate his costume, though. Don't like the ketchup and mustard, I think, as Jen put it. (laughs) Don't like that. But I like this take of the character. And I don't think this will be the tone that is exhibited in his own show anyway. I equate it to being like when you have Riker in Lower Decks. Same guy, but he just fits in with the tone of the show he's in. Yeah, because there is a serial chewing bombast. It's completely dialed up. It's like, I'm Riker. I am here. I will save the day. Or the Legends characters in Arrowverse crossovers. They strip them back a little bit, just so that they're not as insane as they usually are. (laughs) I also really like this version of Daredevil. Most people's complaints about him were just because they were expecting him to be like the really serious, grimdark version of the character from the Netflix show. Why would you expect that A in this show and B in the MCU? Because some people are very, very particular about what they want, regardless of how much it fits with what you're actually watching. And any deviations from these parameters, they interpret as a direct personal insult. I mean, we've already had Kingpin with a floral shirt and a little hat, so what are you actually expecting here? It's the lack of awareness of how these things work and how far the MCU will go with things. We won't have, like you say, anything like we had in the Netflix show, and that's okay. And also, characters are allowed to grow and develop. They don't need to have the exact same personality traits all the time for their entire existence. And certainly to have Daredevil in this show actually be kind of fun. I actually found it quite entertaining. I know a lot of people didn't, but I thought the whole walk of shame <laughs> scene was actually quite funny. And Charlie Cox, he has the range to pull it off as well. That really helps. That is true, yeah. But yeah, I really liked having him there. He's certainly one of the more memorable of the guest appearances. And I liked what they did with him. And if there were plans to use him again, I certainly wouldn't be averse to them. Kat, did you like him? I did. I don't think that He was inconsistent, certainly with his comic book self, but also he cracks jokes in the Netflix show all the time. Not when he's fighting, though. Well, no, but tonally that wouldn't make sense. It's a different kind of show. This is a comedy. This is fine. But the Daredevil show wasn't without mirth. Neither was the Daredevil movie 
was Ben Affleck, which I will defend to my grave. <laughs> Same. It is very, very underrated. Thank you so much. We're doing an episode on that before the show comes on. <laughs> we'll put it on trial. I appreciate that so much. I love that movie a lot. I didn't mind that at all. The humor, I thought that was great. They had fantastic chemistry. He had more chemistry with Tatiana Maslany than he did with the girl who played Elektra in the Netflix show. This I'm here to see. Elektra, I really didn't care about. I'm a big, big fan of the Netflix show. I'm super here for the Catholic guilt superhero, all of the morality questions and what have you, the deep dark drama of Daredevil is always present, even in the comics that are funnier. There have been a lot of different runs that play with different aspects of the character, and some emphasize the drama and the darkness and the sadness and inherent tragedy of Matt Murdock, and some of them are just fun, like he was on this show. So I don't care. I'm just here for more Charlie Cox in any way, shape, or form that I can get him. He is dreamy. <laughs> <laughs> He is dreamy. He looks great as this character. I think he pulls off the lawyer aspect of Matt Murdock too. He looks good in the costume. You can't discount that. Any and all Daredevil appearances, whether it's here or whatever. It does make me a little bit sad that the show that's coming won't necessarily be connected to the Netflix series because it was really going somewhere. Season 3 was really building something. And they cancelled it before we could see what that was. And knowing that Vincent D'Onofrio is coming into the MCU as well, I was really hoping that maybe we could have more of that, please and thank you. But also, I understand if they just want to try something else. It's been long enough of them doing the same thing, but they want to bring different creatives, different writers, different directors to try and tell a different story, that's also fine. I just know that I'll be watching, so whatever. <laughs> Yeah, I was happy with him. Yeah, he's in a comedy, so he's going to naturally be a lot lighter than he probably will be in his own show. But I also don't think the tone of the MCU show will be as heavy as the Netflix show. I just can't see them going to the places they did. Like I said, that's fine. I don't have an issue with that. I think that storytelling is wide and varied and can be wide and varied and should be wide and varied. This is the MCU Daredevil. The comedic timing he had when he was delivering lines like, my ass remains unwhooped and whatever else. <laughs> And I quite liked their team up as well when you had the build up to the classic hallway fight and then she just bursts in and ruins it for him. He can't have his hallway fight. No single take hallway fights here, guys. We have a Hulk. And they were comically mismatched in the way that they were fighting, as in he was beating on people and she was just shrugging them off. That was a nice connection there. I was happy with him. Very happy with him. And can't wait to see what they do with him in his own show, whatever that will be and wherever else he'll turn up. He's doing a cameo tour. Yeah, Spider-Man was the beginning. I don't like the costume. The same was true of the Netflix show as well when he got his Daredevil suit. I wasn't a fan of that either. It was much better when he was just wearing the black fitted shirt with the bandana over his face. The costume was made by this upmarket tailor guy, which seems to be a thing in the MCU where the superior costumes never seem to come from homemade roots other than Peter Parker's first hoodie and balaclava type costume that you see in Homecoming. It's almost turning the superheroes into this elitist group that have impeccably tailored suits, whether it be from this guy or Wakanda or Stark. 
you don't seem to have a lot of the grassroots, I made this by myself type costuming. Just to throw out a kind of esoteric example, one of the things that I quite liked about the beginning of Stargirl, she ends up making her own costume out of the costume that Starman left behind. And there is this whole scene of her doing so in the home economics department of her school or something, where she just ends up burning out a dozen sewing machines from the material, actually showing where it came from. And it was something that was created. It didn't just appear out of nowhere in line with the character assuming this superhero identity, which is something that happens a little too frequently. Yeah, and I was a little bit disappointed that Daredevil got his suit from like an upmarket tailor when he's the scrappy lawyer from Hell's Kitchen that has no money. But whatever, it's just one of those things. It's not a deal breaker for me. It's not a, I have to ignore this entire show because of this, but we're okay there. I wonder if he'll get a new suit for his own show. Hopefully. The ketchup and mustard look is not great. No. (laughs) Before we move on to the last thing, really, which is a listener request for a conversation thing, I just want to mention Pug because he's played by Adrian Chase from Arrow. And I just have to mention that. At no point is he 10 steps ahead of anybody in this show, which is a reference you won't (laughs) understand, Cap. He's still quite shifty, though. And maybe that's because I saw him in that role, but he speaks in that very low voice and... There seems to be something behind the eyes sometimes. It might also partly be because so many men in this show are ultimately portrayed as insecure, childish scum. There's this thing that the back of your mind half expecting him to turn out to be evil. Whereas I think his presence was really just to provide a contrast to all these ignorant, selfish men. And to just have a guy who is just kind of polite and respectful and fundamentally decent. His only vice is trainers. Or sneakers, as the Americans (laughs) call them. Where he has to buy two pairs, one to rock and one to stock. I like that line. I'm going to start using that whenever I buy two of anything, which I never do. I don't buy stuff for resale value. I just buy stuff because I want it. I know this guy who does that with steelbooks. He'll buy one to just own and and watch and enjoy. And and another one that will never go out of its packaging because he thinks at some point down the line it's going to be really valuable. Why doesn't he just buy a digital copy and one steelbook? Because he wants to have steelbooks as things that he's using but at the same time wants to have one that isn't going to depreciate in resale value i collect steelbooks of things that i enjoy as well but i don't really worry about preserving them the only reason that some of them are still in their packaging is because i haven't watched them yet i would mock you but the last time i counted the number of dvds that i own that i haven't actually watched yet the number scared me yeah just don't do it just don't think about it physical media is going to be the death of us one day there'll be an earthquake and we'll be crushed by our collection of dvds and blu-rays and steelbooks i'm going to be bisected by a steelbook that's how i'm going to go isn't that grim it's quite an image on the subject of the other men in the show beyond pug being disgusting and leaning into that idea that they were trying to present do you think it was laying it on a bit thick do you think it was done well cat what do you think on the portrayal of some of the male characters it was certainly a female centric show that was reflected in the creative team as well a lot of female directors female writers etc so i don't necessarily mind that there wasn't as much of a outsized male presence on the show some of those supporting characters i'm thinking of that colleague of theirs at the new firm who's really helpful and has a weird accent i can't place he's lovely but inconsequential ultimately the boss very much what one would expect i don't know that i have any particular feelings about it i'm not like yay down with men but also all these guys suck it was fine i don't know that i have a particular thought here 
There was a couple that I thought were laying it on a bit thick. One was the, I forget his name, but the former colleague who thought he had a chance with the real Megan the Stallion, so therefore the fraud worked on him because he's just that arrogant. But it's the bit where he spies a hot girl in a bar and he's going to talk to it. That's a bit on the nose, dialogue-wise. I don't know. There's people who are like that, though. And this is less about him laying it on thick and more about Feminism 101 being kind of simplistically portrayed in a lot of ways on the show. And there's the other one that I ended up being in a few conversations about with different people. I forget which episode it was in, but Jen and Nikki were sitting in the Legal Ease bar doing some work. And a guy comes up and says, can I buy you sexy ladies a drink? And they're like, nah, go away. They don't say go away, but they're like, nah. And then he's like, okay, I'll be over there. And then he just leaves. And I don't know whether we're supposed to think that that guy is horrific or not, but it seemed like a reasonable interaction to me. He was rejected and just left. Yeah, but it's just that a woman just by existing is inviting you over. You can see that they're working. They're not here to flirt or to find a guy. They're working right now. Again, it's Feminism 101 being very simplistic here. Yeah, sure, he goes away and he doesn't pester them after that, but it's the same thing as when someone's wearing earphones and you bother them anyway because you want to say that they're hot or whatever, you want to shoot your shot, and it's like, I'm clearly not open to being talked to right now. And yet you're still doing that because you feel entitled to me because I am a woman. That's what that's trying to be. I don't think that it's meant to be horrific. It's just one of those little everyday, ugh, again, can you just leave me alone? I'm just trying to live my life and I'm not here to be asked out right now. If I was, I would be wearing something slinky and talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not talking to you. I'm trying to work. That's how I read the situation. Okay. That was certainly my interpretation of it. The guy himself wasn't particularly intended to be one thing or the other. It's more just an acknowledgement of this being the kind of crap that women have to put up with literally all the time. And it is repugnant that that kind of behaviour is just seen as standard, normal, somehow acceptable. It's just infuriating. Even if it isn't intended to be threatening or malicious. The fact that these guys don't understand how intrusive that behaviour is, is a big part of the problem. Yeah, and then it was designed to segue into the whole, this is why I don't date. Well, you don't have to date that guy. And then the Tinder analogue thing starts. And then every other man in the show was cartoonish presence, really. Other than, say, Josh, who had a bit more depth to him, in a way, and Blonsky, and even some of the people in the self-help sharing circle or whatever you want to call it. But they were all just there to deliver some quote-unquote funny dialogue for the most part. But just when you mentioned, Andrew, that Hug is the exception, I just thought I'd bring us on to that. But as a final thing, we do have a request from a listener, which is, I think, the first time this has ever happened in 200-somewhat episodes. We have a frequent commenter who is called Violet, who has been commenting on a lot of the podcasts. So Shout out to Violet. Thank you for supporting us and engaging with us and being part of the chat in your own little way. So we've got a request from Violet here. It says, I felt like all the chatter online about this episode was focused on the Steve Rogers joke in the final scene. This was a comment on the first episode review that I wrote. This annoyed me at first because I was hoping for more discussion of the actual show and to celebrate how great Tatiana Maslany was. And this Steve Rogers thing totally overshadowed that for an online moment. But the more I thought about it, the more I realised that it bothered me that we're still using the media to reinforce the old stigma that being a virgin is bad. Quote unquote. 
and have that been something wrong or a problem that needs to be solved? And using it to give Jen this weird recurring joke of obsessing about Captain America's virgin status, we'd love to know your thoughts in the future podcast. So what do we think of this? Do we think this is a furthering of the stigma that it's a bad thing to choose to remain that way if that's how you so choose? I certainly see where she's coming from in the query, though I don't think it was necessarily in- intended to be saying that being a virgin is somehow a bad thing, though I do agree that that is a very damaging stereotype that really just needs to crawl into a corner and be shot in the head. I more interpreted it as Jen feeling that with someone as awesome and heroic as Steve was, that he deserved to experience sex, because basically sex is awesome. <laughs> and the fact that that was just a significant life experience that, as far as Jen was aware, the circumstances of Steve's life prevented him from experiencing. She just felt that was a tragedy rather than something to criticise or belittle. Cap, what do you think? I absolutely, again, see where Violet's coming from with this one. And I do agree that it does perpetuate this a little bit. I come at it from a slightly different angle, which is... You're assuming Steve is straight, and I just don't think that he is. Well, she didn't specify who he'd be having sex with. Oh, no, no. The whole thing was Peggy. They didn't do anything before he went under, and then he came back, and the assumption was definitely heterosexuality. At no point is it mentioned that Bucky is there the whole time, (laughs) and I just have some thoughts about this. From what I'm told, you're not the only one. No. It's a very prevalent, yeah. And then other people would say the same thing about Tony Stark after Cap comes back from the ice. So there's a lot there. There's a lot to unpack. I firmly believe in Steve Rogers as a bisexual person. So all of that aside, actually, I see this more as a nod to the internet. I read somewhere and I will find the tweet so you can include it in your show notes. I can't find it right now. I'm digging through my Twitter likes. And this was a while ago, obviously, whenever the pilot first aired. But there was a writer who wrote a piece about this. And the headline was basically that. Here's my theory about whether or not Captain America is still a virgin. And they wrote this like a full year before the show aired. I think I saw this. I might have retweeted it. And so in the next episode, there was again another nod to online MCU discourse, which again, that writer had written about like a year before the show was even a thing. (laughs) The writer was like, I mean, this is lovely, but also some credit would be great. Yeah, exactly. So I just think it's the writers being like, oh, look, we're clued into how people talk about the Marvel everything, analyzing the characters and theorizing and all of these things. And so we're going to make a pointed reference to a lot of these discourses that exist online. And part of me is like, yeah, I mean, it's funny to an extent. I think it's reductive. Even from that writer's perspective, you assume that Steve is straight, but okay. But yeah, just generally, I just think it's the writers trying to be smart ass. We know the internet. Here's the thing that the internet talks about. And it kind of feeds into the finale a little bit. You know, all these things that they're aware that people want and how do they construct a narrative that will be satisfying to all these people. So I think that's really kind of where it comes from. More than anything else, the virginity debate and stigma and stupid, oh, if you don't have sex, you haven't lived. As a self-confessed late bloomer, it has been my experience that, yeah, it's awesome. And I didn't experience it for a long time in my life. And then it was like, oh, yeah, no, this is great. Okay, cool. Is it everything? No. And there's certainly a subset of people for whom it is 
absolutely not a priority. And that's also valid. And say if Steve was asexual or just not really into that kind of stuff, would that have made him any less of a hero? Would that have made him any less of a great guy and great character to root for? So what if he was a virgin? None of that negates anything that he's about. So yeah, people need to stop. It's damaging, especially to those people for whom it is not a priority and for whom the obsession that we have in society with sex, everything, it can be a lot and it can be a lot to deal with. And it's just not nice to just focus on something that is so insignificant, and especially in the centuries of, I would say, progress. Centuries? Is it centuries? Probably not. Decades, though, of progress on what does it mean for a woman to be a virgin and unsullied and all of these things. We've moved past it, I'd like to think, at least in the Western world. There are certainly corners of the world where that hasn't improved, but at the same time, the opposite can also be true of for some people, it's just not a thing. And can we stop with the obsession, please, and focus on who a person is as a person? Those are my thoughts. It was something that didn't really occur to me until it was brought to my attention that this was a thing. I'm not on social media very often, but I'm aware of the fact that after the first episode, that was a lot of what the conversation was rather than the show itself, rather than the lead character, etc. Although I think this show often invited people to be talking about something else that wasn't the show itself. They even address it when it's Wong's in this episode. It's like giving the show Twitter armor for a week. And then you've got the bit where Jennifer does say, oh, don't expect this to be a show that's cameos every week, when by that point it had been cameos every week. And most of the episodes includes at least a nod to someone else, if not a full-blown cameo. There's an episode that Daredevil isn't in, but you see the helmet at the end. So Daredevil's coming, don't worry about it. That kind of stuff. So I feel like it's stoking the flames of that kind of criticism anyway. So I guess whoever doesn't get to be annoyed about the fact that people are talking about something else when the show is encouraging you to talk about something else. But in terms of the debate itself, I've seen the whole, oh, you're still a virgin, ha ha ha, stigma brought up in other media or just in real life. It's horrible. People aren't emotionally equipped to take that step. They don't have the opportunity. They're anxious about these things. They're not comfortable being touched, all those things. They're all valid ways to feel. They're all valid choices. They're all just part of life, really. And it's not something that you're missing out on. It's like when people say, if you don't have kids, then you're not really living life. No, no. It's just my choice is different to yours. There's all sorts of lights being shone on different life choices, things like polyamory and all these things that were once seen as stigmatized and taboo. And I bet you there were subsets of the internet that were obviously addressed in this show that would called Jenna Slut because she slept with three men over the course of nine episodes. How dare, yeah. Right? Gosh. <laughs> she should be ashamed of herself. Whereas you can have James Bond do that in the space of a two-hour film. The same number of women or anything like that. Or watch any CW show. <laughs> the number of partners people rack up over a short period of time. That stigma still exists. And I think it's something that's lobbied at men. If you reach a certain age and you're still a virgin, it counts as this rite of passage that you haven't passed and therefore you're not a real man. And then for women, it's almost the opposite. It's if you've been with more than this many men by a certain age, then you're a slut. We're still battling against those things. And I don't think it was a malicious inclusion. Although I got the impression that Bruce only told her that he was with a girl during a USO show, I think he says. Mm -hmm. I got the impression he was only telling her that to shut her up. He doesn't actually know. I mean, maybe. It kind of doesn't matter, to be honest. No. I do remember 
when that comment was made, someone posted a screen grab from the first Avenger, actually identifying who that girl probably was, being on screen for like five seconds. Yeah, I think I know the scene you're talking about. That's how well I know that film. But even in the first Avenger itself, he talks about it didn't seem to matter him too much. He'd figured he'd wait, etc. He was waiting for the right partner, whether that be Bucky or Peggy, we could not debate (laughs) on this podcast because we'd be here until four in the morning, probably, because I sense that Kat has thoughts. Sorry, thoughts about what? (laughs) Whether the right partner for him was Peggy or Bucky. I do. Insert that gif from The Road to El Dorado. Both, both, both is good. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) That's how I feel about life, generally speaking. So yes, I don't think it was a malicious inclusion, but I also think it's somewhat insensitive in a way that they're implying that Steve is somehow less of a man because he may or not have experienced this thing. So that's where I'm sitting on it. Hopefully that addresses your question, Violet, and thank you for giving us that to ponder. Give us more things to ponder. We will ponder them on whatever episode it becomes relevant. So let us call an end to this court case. Let's deliver our closing arguments. That's on brand, right? Kat, what is your closing argument? Ladies and gentlemen and friends beyond the binary in the jury, I would like to state that She-Hulk is just fine. I would give it three out of five stars. I had a pretty okay time watching it. I probably won't think about it until season two rolls around, if it rolls around. I hope it rolls around. I think they have some pretty good foundations. I think they can certainly do a lot of cool stuff with that. More fun legal things, please. Less femsplaining, for lack of a better (laughs) word, please. I'm here for all the feminist everything. Just let there be a little more nuance, let the characters speak for themselves, and maybe that's what the finale's kind of argument is. Maybe it can be more character-driven because the show was not. But it's okay. It is fine. It is passable. Will I think about this again? Nah. Do you care about Hulk's weird freak son that he introduces? (laughs) Oh, I really don't. More of this uncanny valley, not looking quite right CG person? No thank you, but... (laughs) I know that there's going to be more of this, so I'm resigned to it. I think they look much better in film because, of course, there's more budget. There's more time to render things. In theory. Yeah, in theory. And if the VFX crisis keeps going the way it is, uh who knows? But I didn't really love a lot of the green She-Hulk gen look a lot of the time. It both does and doesn't look like her. She certainly doesn't smile the way that Tatiana Masani smiles. She doesn't move enough. I think she's kind of static a little bit, a little bit like a video game character, which in a video game, you're kind of okay with it. But when it's like this, and especially next to real life people, it doesn't always look great. Obviously, they had to do it. I just didn't really love it. So I'm not super keen about this Hulk son thing. I know nothing about it, and I do not care. They'll bring him up at some point, sure. But right now, I don't care at all. And that's on them. That was another bit where the finale just didn't really deliver on what it was promising. It's the, but Bruce needs to come back because he needs to reveal this. No, he doesn't. Save it for the movie. And then he does it anyway. Yeah. Although Andrew, the son, is played by an actor who was in Stargirl. Oh, I missed that. He was the magician's son. I forget the name. I think he dies pretty early on. Oh, Joey. I can't remember the actor's name, but the character's name was Joey. I'm sure you could go on a long tirade about Scar's place in the comics, and so could I, but I don't really care at this point. No, it's not worth the effort. No. So what's your closing argument? Learned friends, it is my contention that taken on its own merits, 
She-Hulk is at the very least an above average show. In places its weaknesses are often its strengths and vice versa. Its refusal to take itself completely seriously leads to quite a lot of fun, but it's also done at the expense of developing ideas to their full potential or thinking them through to their logical conclusion. I overall had a great time with it and if slash when they make more of it I am certainly going to be looking forward to it just because I'll be looking forward to that same kind of light-hearted inoffensive fun that doesn't require a great deal of overthinking or introspection nor does it ask for it which for me was one of my most favorite things about it. Fair enough. My closing argument is that I like aspects of the show and I feel like it completely fell off a cliff at the end of the season, which made my head hurt and continues to make my head hurt. And as you said, after this podcast is published, I'm just going to try and forget about it and deal with whatever season two brings to me whenever that rolls around. I think it had a lot of potential that it failed to live up to. And there was a couple of episodes in there that I just thought were... As you said, Kat, a complete slog. The retreat one and the wedding one were the worst ones for me. Particularly when in the wedding one, the lesson that Jennifer's supposed to learn is the day isn't about her. It's about the bride, but she ends up taking attention away from that and it ends up being okay, which is a weird thing to end on, but never mind. Yeah, I was pretty lukewarm on the show until the end when I kind of retroactively hated it, which is where I'm landing on it. That's what a bad ending can do sometimes. I'm usually one that argues for the fact that the destination doesn't sully the journey, and that's often the case. But in this case, I think it does devalue a lot of what came before. So that's where I stand on it. And whether we'll see Jennifer again in anything, I wouldn't be surprised if she has a cameo in Daredevil Born Again, at the very least. And it'll be interesting to see if she conforms to the tone of that show in the way that Daredevil conformed to the tone of hers. I don't know. We'll find out. That would be fun, I think. Yeah, I'd be surprised if they didn't at least get her in for an episode or so. There are 18 of them. There's room hmm. for an appearance of it. So we'll find out, I suppose. So yeah, She-Hulk, very lukewarm to bad, as far as I'm concerned, as a whole. As a Hulk? <laughs> as a Hulk, as a whole. I'm sorry that I couldn't resist. The finale created Hulk rage within me. <laughs> I did love the recreation of the opening credits of the 70s show, though. That was good. Oh, yes, that was a lot of fun. Nice touch there. But yes, that was our discussion of She-Hulk season one slash possibly only season. Well, I want to thank my guests, my contributors, my fellow Avengers. Kat, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. And Andrew, thank you for being here. Always a delight. Good. I would like to thank Neil Stenson for the supplied music. And if you like what you heard, then please do hit subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your podcatcher of choice. And you can usually rate on most of them. Certainly on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, you can. And they use a star system. So, Kat, I'm going to pick on you. What number of stars do you want? I would hazard a guess and say five, please. And Andrew, would we like a comment? Well, if you could see to type up some thoughts on how incredibly fascinating and entertaining we are to listen to, then we certainly would not say no to that. Or if you want to insult us, you can do that. Engagement is always engagement. (laughs) It's like when people say about the dislike button on YouTube, the algorithm doesn't know the difference. You're still engaging with the content. (laughs) Anyway, we digress. If you want to talk to us, you can get us on Facebook or Twitter under Neil Before Blog, or you can leave us a comment on neilbeforeblog.co.uk or on podcatchers somewhere. Well, I don't know how I would see those, but do it, I'll find it. And as always, we hope you'll join us next time on Neil Before Pod.